Hello everyone, it's Brian here. Before we snap into another episode of Nitrogen Podcast, we feel it's appropriate to address the speaking out movement. It's something Mark and myself have discussed in private in terms of how we approach it. If you have noticed, we have been quiet on our social media recently, and it's because we felt it would be for the best to discuss it on the podcast so we don't give off the impression that we are taking the allegations lightly. We consider ourselves a comedy podcast and have tackled some sensitive topics on the podcast before, but foremostly it's an outlet to poke fun of the absurd stuff WCW did. This upcoming episode and the next were pre-recorded prior to the movement because I was moving house, and we want to make it clear that because there isn't any discussion about the movement does not mean we don't want to discuss it. We will, I'm sure. What has come to light is horrifying and upsetting to say the least. It's becoming clear that wrestling, particularly the UK scene, has a systematic issue with sexual harassment and assault, predatory behaviour and other horrible stuff, and we can only hope that this is the beginning of some better days for the industry. But hoping isn't enough. We have to take the allegations seriously and challenge the industry as a whole to permanently banish those found guilty of any wrongdoing. We are also very aware that some WCW stars have a checkered history, and I guess it's somewhat easier to discuss this period because it's been done and dusted. But we don't want this to be misconstrued as a celebration of the WCW alumni where it's not deserved. We have and will hold the shitty behaviour to account as we go along. Again, we don't want to seem like we are making light of the real life issues that surround the business. It's not what we do here. For years we have been given the impression that the business has changed for the better, and in many ways that is true. There's no more bed of cocaine stories for sure, but in other ways it's worse, and it just sucks. But the bottom line is, I hope for better days and hope the justice system holds any guilty parties accountable. Apologies for the sombre tone, and hope you can enjoy episode 8 of Nitrogen Podcast. simply can't believe we're at this juncture in the Nitrogen podcast. We finally made it to the end of 1995. Unbelievable, Brian. What do you think so far? Yeah, it's been a pretty slow year, hasn't it? (laughs) I say that sarcastically. It's gone by really fast, but it's not been been without its uh, roadblocks, shall we say. No, it certainly hasn't. And uh, the good news for you listeners out there is today we're bringing you a special edition podcast. Uh, basically because there's three episodes of Nitro remaining in 1995 as well as Starcade 1995. We're going to cover all of it in today's episode so that we've got a brand spanking new place to start on the next episode, which will be episode nine of the Nitrogen podcast starting 1996, the year that everything changed in the wrestling business. It's all going to be fun and games from this point onwards. But... We do have the small matter of wrapping up 1995 as it stands right now. And there's a couple of things that aren't too bad, but quite a lot of it that we really need to talk about. So today, Nitro number 15 is going to come from Charlotte, North Carolina. Horseman and Ric Flair country on December 11th, 1995. We're going to start off with the dark matches for this one, which include the Disco Inferno defeating Alex Wright. Johnny B. Bad who is the television champion defeating Diamond Dallas Page for the 75th time in this... 
<laughs> I mean, these two don't wrestle anybody else anymore, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> Johnny B. Bad retains the WCW World Television Championship, which feels like it's been round the waist of Johnny B. Bad for about fucking nine months. The Blue Bloods, Lord Stephen Regal and Squire David Taylor, defeated Bunkhouse Buck and Dick Slater. Again, Stephen Regal, we've, I don't even think we've seen on Nitro as of yet. I think he got attacked on the second Nitro by Harlem Heat. I might be wrong, though. Yeah, he could be right. We've just not seen him in a fight, fighting capacity, but again, as 1996 rolls around, we're going to be seeing a little bit more of uh, Stephen, a.k.a. William Regal. Can't wait. One of my favourite wrestlers of all time. Mm, definitely. So we're starting off the episode of Nitro here with the guys at the commentary desk talking about the heat between Sting and Hogan while Arn and Ric Flair remain on the same page. All will face off later on in the main event on WCW Nitro. The bell rings and we don't hesitate in getting straight to the ring to get into the action and Mr. JL and Eddie Guerrero are straight into it. Yeah, that was really weird. It was just like usually be like there would be at least one person in the ring already and they'll just cut to the action, cut to an entrance but this time, it's like they hear a bell ring and they're already there in the ring getting it on. Like, that did not sound right. <laughs> getting it on. So the, so when it came to actually like going straight to the ring, obviously that's to, to give it the impression that like anything could happen at this moment in time. You know, this is natural and anything can happen sort of thing. Did you like it? Did you? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Like, at first I thought it were really, really weird. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? And suddenly straight away, there's two people in the ring fighting and... You know, you don't get more be- uh, much better than Eddie Guerrero and Mr. JL. You know, these two people have been... Obviously, everyone knows how good Eddie Guerrero is. But for me, JL, uh, I've only seen like later years Jerry Lynn when he slowed down a little bit. Here he is... He's a lot faster, a lot snappier, and he's been... He has been a highlight. Yeah, I mean, I, I would tend to agree with that. The The issue that I've got is that out of the four people that we're currently looking at when it comes to Eddie Guerrero, Di Malenko, Chris Benoit, Mr. JL, who just seem to be like back and forth with each other over the course of, what, maybe the past couple of months, is that, yeah. unfortunately, JL seems to be the fourth. He's the very last one because the rest of them are, like, technically very gifted. And that's not... Um, we're not besmirching Jerry Lynn here. He, he's obviously very, very gifted, but... Yeah, no, not at all. He's, uh, he's a, He is very good. It, it's just more from a perspective of... I've seen his uh, short-running WWE where he mainly wrestled on heat. He didn't really make much of a, an impression, though. And he's some of his TNA runs, should I say. And by that point, he, he, he wasn't the fastest wrestler. He, he was a very good wrestler, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are matches out there with Rob Van Dam, a series with Rob Van Dam. If you've never seen them, I absolutely recommend them. Fucking brilliant matches. But, yeah, even then, he wasn't he wasn't this guy. And I think having this persona maybe just encouraged him to be a little bit more, for lack of a better word, lucha. He certainly doesn't have a bad showing in this match, I don't think. Um, from the get-go, we see Eddie itching to get to the top rope, as he always does. And there's a springboard moonsault fake out, a slingshot sent onto the inside very early on. I love I love these these slingshot sent ons that he does because you know he 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 looks up while he's in the air and then just tucks his head at the very last second. It could be so lethal, but it just adds so much to the to the move and to the to the fluidity of the move itself. It's huge showmanship from the top turnbuckle, holding the wrist of JL and uh, taking him over. So it's just a, it's just essentially a wrist log or a wrist drag or whatever, but because he's gone to the top rope and he's just jumping and <laughs> somersaulting and everything, it's just so ballet-esque and you just, the jaw hits the floor. 
that's the only way I could really put it is that I know. thought he fucked up. Did you? Like, yeah, he, he looked like he was going for like a frog splash while having having uh, Jello in an arm lock because <laughs> he, he he had that much elevation in it. It was like, what the fuck has he just done? It was only when I actually saw the replay, I actually saw what happened. Like it was all intentional. Yeah, it was mainly to add a little bit of uh, flash to what he was doing, but he, you know he executes it absolutely perfectly. Yeah, like you said, it's it, flash, isn't it? It's just to make it look so much better than just a, you know it, a generic wrist. It was insane, absolutely insane. JL does manage to get uh, some offence in in this match after running off the apron for a cent on. That's just kind of a bit meh when you've seen Eddie Guerrero doing all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's nice enough, but it it, it doesn't hold a candle to the likes of Eddie Guerrero who are doing the exact same thing. And this is showcasing Eddie, I suppose. I mean, JL's not here to be to be showcased because he's. On Nitro every week, whereas Eddie is. Yeah, he's the outcast. It does it does work in Eddie's favour, really, to showcase him. We get a couple of pin attempts, but Eddie does get the win with a sit-out pin attempt. I almost said a powerbomb then, but uh, flashing back in my head, this, this kind of spoiled it for me a little bit, because it's one of them where he's got the sit-out pin attempt and then JL sort of pushes himself out of it to then attempt his own pin attempt, and then Eddie tries to push himself out of that and then gets a pin attempt again, and it just seemed to... It seemed to go a little bit awry halfway through. Yeah, JL actually flipped himself into a pin. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't I don't like moves like that. Uh, moves that blatantly require the assistance of the other performer. I mean, all moves do. Well, maybe not all moves, but most moves do. No one is getting picked up by uh, the Undertaker or a Kane or, or the Giant uh, for for a chalk slam. Or uh, they have to have the opponent leaping up. But their sheer size can actually make that believable. Believable that they can actually pick somebody up by their neck and drop them. With some wrestlers, they definitely could do it. I believe that. But here we've got yeah. Mr. Gel flipping forward into a pin. And yeah, it kind of took me out a little bit. Yeah. I think what they should have done is they should have just literally given Eddie the uh, pinfall from the body scissors. That would have been impressive enough. Yes. With the way that he sort of contorts his body around but when you were giving the example there of you know the undertaker and kane and the choke slams and stuff like that, i actually thought you were going to go for a canadian destroyer oh yeah you for people that don't know me very well i do not like the canadian destroyer i used to i really did used to but that was more like when i was in my early 20s and just got into tna and i was very enthusiastic about the product but seeing something like that that i'd never seen before it was like of course it's gonna it's gonna make your jaw drop but when you actually learn a little bit more about how these moves are performed, um, it's only believable that Peter Williams could do that on a smaller performer. It's not believable they could do it on fucking mm. Scott Steiner. I don't know if he ever did it on Scott Steiner. I'm just assuming that they had a feud at some point. Um, so he probably would have attempted it at least. But yeah, when it's a bigger guy, you're not going to be able to do it. But yeah, not a fan of that move. But it's not as bad as a Panama Sunrise. Adam Cole, such a good wrestler. Get a better finisher, dude. <laughs> it's basically the same, but he does a, uh, like a little jump off the rope and then a flip. It's like, nah, it's not for me. And that's you, old brother. Yeah. <laughs> if he's listening. Probably not. Back onto the Nitro, we go to Mean Gene, who's with Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger, and they talk about Lex being the uncrowned world heavyweight champion. We see videos from the past two pay-per-views, as well as the previous Nitro, where Lex is shown to be at a significant advantage, but continuously prevented from winning the title by hook or by crook. 
Uh, Lex says that he owns Macho, almost forgets how many times Flair won the title and continues to put up the stakes with Sting's friendship for when they face off at Starcade in the triangle match for the number one contendership. I have to say, Mean Gene was absolutely excellent here. Yeah. Uh, because he just says uh, to Luger that he's looking spectacular in the most sarcastic way possible. <laughs> and then he actually says to Jimmy Hart, uh, who dressed you, Spike Lee or Spike Jones? <laughs> now, I didn't know who Spike Jones were. I actually had to do a little Google search. Uh, he is a, well, he was a comedy musician that would wear these over-the-top, giant checkered suits. Jimmy Hart's not wearing a checkered suit here, but I actually got the idea of what he was going for. It's very flamboyant, very out there. But what made me laugh is calling Spike Lee, uh, asking if Spike Lee dressed him because immediately I looked at Jimmy Hart's face and with those glasses and that moustache, take away the hair, it's Spike Lee. He looks just like him. When you were doing your research on Spike Jones, uh, did you know that he's the guy who, who had a hand in doing the dark side of the rings? No. He is. But the dead guy? Well, he's, he's in the credits. Could be a, <laughs> could could be a... a different guy. <laughs> 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 there is legitimately a Spike Jones in the dark side of the ring. Obviously, he's not in the dark side of the ring, but he's in the production of it. It's producing from the dark side. So back to Nitro, we, we're going to go into another match here, which is less about the match and more about a storyline moving forward, which is Disco Inferno versus Paul Orndorff. There's a lot of TV time given to these two's entrances, a little bit more than what you'd normally give, I suppose. Disco comes out of the blocks very heavy early on, and when Orndorff actually gets some offence in, he spends more time doing some serious dad dancing and imitating Disco Inferno. He reminded me of uh, my dad dancing to cool at the gang at a wedding, or anybody's dad. <laughs> Just, it's hard to watch. Yeah, that hard to watch. It's funny, but it's not. It's kind of like, if, if you're his child, you'll be like, oh, fuck no, dad. Like, I, I just imagine like my dad doing that at a wedding. Like, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not good at the same time. There's the old myth or the old cliche that, that, that says that when women want to see how a guy is in bed, they've got to watch how they dance. Paul Orndorff <laughs> just doesn't stand a fucking chance here, does he, really? If you're no. his son, you're thinking, oh, that's how I were conceived. <laughs> oh, God. Holy hell. This podcast is going off the rails very early on. Let's move on. When does it not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I spend much time talking about this match. Oindorf wins it with his feet on the ropes during a pin after a belly-to-back suplex. Really, really nothing, really. We go to the entranceway where Gene Auckland is stood with three of the four horsemen, which is all of them except for Chris Benoit. Very weird. Pillman talks about being part of the horsemen and how it's the chance of a lifetime. He says that even Hogan wanted to be part of the horsemen when he went back to the email phase, but soon went back to the colours of the red and yellow. He played the bad guy, is what Brian Pillman yes. says. Uh, my Brian Pillman impression <laughs> obviously leaves a lot to, to be desired, but what impression doesn't? But yeah, it's kind of like, is that a shoot? What, Hogan wanted to be part of the Horsemen? No, Brian Pillman actually saying that. Like, he's at a shoot that he's playing the bad guy. It's kind of like he's breaking the fourth wall a little bit. Like, knowing wink to the crowd that, yeah, he's a character. When he was dressed in the black and white, he was playing a bad guy. Like, that's how that's how I saw it. It's kind of like you're seeing his little glimpse of the, the loose cannon persona coming out as we speak yeah I, I didn't really think of that to be honest but now you've said it that, that seems to make a lot of sense and obviously over the coming I think it's over the coming two or three months you, you see that happening more and more 
in WCW. Yeah. Um, so you might be onto some of there, really. Pillman says that they don't have that the luxury of you know being able to chop and change because they are always the bad guys. Uh, and he talks about the American males and Steve Mongo McMichael sending the horsemen Polaroids. Well, he says eight by tens, but I'm going to say Polaroids because we're British. Yeah, and it's uh, it 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 timestamps 1995 perfectly, doesn't it as well? Was it Pol- oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Polaroids. Yep. You know, none of these fucking eight by tens. Fucking Polaroids, mate. He does say about Steve McMichael that uh, apparently he's very flexible. I don't. I, at first, my my mind went into the gutter with this one, and I kind of thought, can Steve McMichael not get a hard on? But then I kind of thought, I don't. You know, I, I maybe he's just sort of pausing like very flexibly in this eight by ten. I don't know. My mind can go into a fucking dark place. Sometimes. Oh Jesus Christ! I don't want to think about Mongo that way. But this is that isn't even the best part of this promo. The best part of this promo is the hilarious impression of Shark and Zodiac. Oh yes. And then he rolls his eyes in the back of his head, and it's just like Pillman, man, you're fucking great. And Rick, you can see Rick Flair. I mean, he's outwardly looking like he's enjoying it, but I'm pretty sure inside he's just like this guy. I swear to God, he's fucking showing me up. <laughs> he finally sets his sights on Paul Orndorff who is now apparently part of the Psychic Friends Network which is a joke lost on me and I'm sure it is with you as well yeah. Brian yeah completely lost a lot of this kind of seems like Pillman's going loopy which is the entertaining aspect of it, if it even if it is kind of perplexing at times to the audience at home Fleur soon takes over and rescues it with typical nature boy promo but Paul Orndorff actually comes out to square up to Pillman for the words that he said earlier he says that he could have been a horseman and that the reason that Brian Pillman is is because Orndorff isn't. He says Pillman is just a bag carrier for Arnhem Flair, which prompts the three to attack him. This results in a pal driver to Orndorff on the bare floor with Flair helping to drill him into the floor and the commentary putting over the seriousness of all of it as we pull away to a promo for WCW Saturday night. Lord, I will fucking on Anderson and Rick Flair, but... The way they try to pull Paul Orndorff off Brian Pillman was kind of like the teams that are in a relegation battle in the Premier League scrapping to defend when they're facing like the likes of Man City. That's what, that's the vibe I got. It wasn't very good. It was just kind of like, it was very bumbly. Yeah, and this is supposed to be the premier sort of faction in wrestling at this moment in time. Yeah. Well, no, no. You're forgetting about the Dungeon of Doom, mate. How could I forget them? Yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> So this is significant, uh, but the matches are going to continue as Orndorff is loaded onto a stretcher. Uh, Lex Luger's music plays, and we're going to go straight into a match, which is Lex Luger versus Jim Duggan. It certainly feels just like we're going back to the 80s here. The commentary talk again about the horseman's cohesiveness, Orndorff's injury and its seriousness, and the events surrounding Luger the, the last three or four weeks. We cut back again from the match to see Orndorff being loaded into an ambulance while the two in the ring are going back and forth with momentum. Anytime there's an ambulance, I instantaneously, I see Steve Austin. You know what I mean? I, I see the Steve Austin, the bedpan and all sorts. I just see all of that when I see an ambulance in wrestling now. Oh, yeah. Just expecting to jump out the back to his music. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> pounding the fuck out of Triple H. Fucking hell, that's another choice of words though, Bri. I've got <laughs> fucking sex on the brain now. <laughs> I apologise. Before we actually... Uh, started this podcast, we had a very elongated chat about uh, bands that basically just sing about nothing but sex. I'm not going to name the band, just in case you are listening. From that, it's just like every time I say something that could be construed as something sexual, it's just making me laugh now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Well, let's carry on. Let's <laughs> let's see, see how many more we can get out of you. Hey, it's a drinking game. 
So we see Owendorf being loaded into the ambulance while the two in the ring are going back and forth with momentum. Lex wins after Jimmy Hart stood on the rope with the 2x4 and Duggan distracted. So Lex seizes the opportunity, nudges Duggan into the wood and racks him up. I say nudges because it was really, really tame. Yeah. Really comedic. But he, he sticks him in the torture rack, which you just see from Lex all the fucking time now. They really are getting over this torture rack. And to be fair, I've been in it and I've given one and it does, it does hurt. But yeah. I don't know if they were trying to build to like the, the torture act versus the Scorpion Deathlock versus the figure four, which would have been actually a pretty cool way to, to build Starcade's match, but it just seems like that was lost on them creatively. It just seems like Lex Luger's doing fuck all in the ring, and that's all he's got going for him. Mm, yeah, he's a, one weapon arsenal. Yeah, unless it's a title match, as we said last week. Yeah. It, it's so frustrating, because now I'm getting this perspective from Lex that... He can do much better than what he is, and it just seems like he just puts his all in when it's important to him and not important to anything else, and it is such a shame. He's not the best wrestler in mind, but, you know, put a little bit more effort in. At least that way we can say, yeah, you're not that lazy. After the break, Gene is with a dapper-looking macho man Randy Savage here who is dressed all in black, orange, and pink. I fucking loved it. Yeah. He always looks like a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, you, you take those very vibrant colours and then put the big gold around his waist. Mm. Chef kiss. He just looks fucking amazing. I can't say any more about the guy, really. It's just a shame about that Hulk Hogan nameplate on the belt, brother. Uh, yeah, apparently he's still got it on. Yeah. yeah, it's been like six months. Yeah. It's not, but <laughs> you it- get what I mean. <laughs> We run down all the matches Macho's got coming up. He's got the Giant next week in the main event. He's got Ric Flair the week after the Giant in a world title match on Nitro. He's got Tensan in the World Cup at Starcade. And then he's going to have to defend the title after facing Tensan at Starcade. Potential opponents that he'll face in the world title match as well. Obviously, one could be Ric Flair, one could be Sting, and one could be Lex Luger. We don't know. But Macho is only focused on the Giant next week on Nitro in the main event. Gene alludes to the Giant being related to Andre the Giant again after Savage says that there's only one time he's felt such power against him and that was against Andre the Giant before we quickly plug another Slim Jim snap into it. I will say one thing. He says next week on TNT is going to be dynamite in the Giant's face. And that is actually pretty cool. That I mean, retroactively, it's just linking up TNT and dynamite like that. Brilliant. Even more so now that we've got a wrestling show called Dynamite on TNT. I I, I really like that. Matt Shaw foreshadowed this back in 1995. What a guy. Yes. What a guy. So we're gonna we're gonna throw ourselves right into the main event here. This is this is something that I've really been looking forward to talking to you about actually since the last time we spoke and the last time we did a, a podcast. Thank you everybody for listening. So the main event here is Arn Anderson and Ric Flair representing the Four Horsemen versus Hulkamania and the Stinger. Straight off the bat, again, the cohesion between Ric Flair and Arn Anderson is displayed full force because they come out together, whereas Sting comes out to his music and Hogan decides to wait 10 minutes before he comes out. It's made to look like Sting came out too early and that Hogan was waiting for Sting, but you know Sting's theme had got to the point where Sting is going to come out normally and Hogan just decided to loiter. There was a big disconnect there. Mm. Sting barely has any blonde streaks left in his hair now. It, it just seems like from yeah. one week to another week, I think he might have dyed it. Either he's dyed it or he's had it cut. I can't really tell, but it seems like from one week, he he still had 
the blonde frosted tips, and now there's very little there. Yeah, I think he might. He might have had it cut. Yeah. It, no, you come and mention it. It looked a little bit like it had been cut cut at the sides. Yeah. So we're going into the match here, and we're going to hear huge Hogan Sucks chants, obviously. We're in Charlotte, North Carolina here, which is Ric Flair country. Oh, he's booed yes. like fuck. I found this so cathartic. It's absolutely great to hear, but as much as I hate Hulk Hogan, it actually makes it, it intrigued me how the four of these wrestlers were going to turn this around and make it look good on TV. Because if your number one quote unquote babyface in Hulk Hogan is being booed to shit, and Ric Flair and Arn Anderson are supposed to be the heels in this scenario, what the fuck are you going to do? So I got really intrigued by this, and I watched it three or four times actually to see if there was anything that I missed. So I'm going to cover this in, in a little bit more detail than we have done, say the Disco Inferno versus Paul Lundorf match. That goes without saying, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Obviously, we're going into a pay per view as well, which is the biggest pay per view in WCW's arsenal, which is Starcade '95. All of the early offenses are, and it goes over great with the fans. They're absolutely loving every second of it. Hogan takes some heat once tagged in, while Flair being tagged in gets huge pops. With Flair on the floor, Arn takes advantage to get momentum on the side of the four horsemen, but Hogan manages to get the upper hand while Sting brawls with Flair on the floor. Arn sneakily holding onto Hogan's shorts while Flair is in against Hogan, Flair chopping away and punching away on Hogan is magnificent to me because this is just like a, a, a really small thing that almost everybody in the audience want to see. But Arn knew exactly where the camera was. He saw the red light on the camera. He knew that he that the camera was on him. So he just did this teeny tiny little heel trick that will have garnered so much heat at home. I fucking loved it. I just marked out just for somebody holding somebody's tights. Yeah. And you say that as well. He actually notices the camera in the corner at one point where um, Floyd is chopping Hogan in the corner behind Arn. And Arn is actually looking away and holding and squinting his face. He's kind of like, oh, fucking hell, he stinks. And I just, oh my God, I found that so funny. It's the little things that the camera picks up, the little nuances that make wrestling such a unique entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Those little things, they mount up. If you have so many of those little things, you know, they, they, they really do make the structure, the match, the structure of character, the structure, you know, the faction, the tag team, the, the heat. It's just so brilliantly done. And it's just it just shows, like, you know, the veteran that Arn Anderson is for me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Fleur and Sting get most of the work done in the ring, to be fair to him. Uh, Fleur tags out, but Arn elects to go up top, which doesn't work out well for Arn. Sting with a deathlock brings Hogan in. Which distracts the referee. Now, Fleur comes in, but the referee's not seen this, so Sting breaks the hold on Arn, puts Fleur in the Scorpion Deathlock, only for Arn to give him a sweetly manufactured DDT as Sting is turning Fleur over. I, I love this because it just went so smoothly. Yeah, perfect timing. Jimmy Hart is out as Hogan gets back onto the apron, and Lex Luger sneaks around to distract Hogan. They brawl while Arn takes care of Sting in the ring. Luger racks Hogan out on the floor, and Sting is in big trouble in the Horseman Corner. Fleur works the knee of Sting consistently, but as Sting gets to the corner for a tag, Hogan's obviously not there. The chemistry between Arn and Fleur is superb. There's a big pop for the figure four when it gets locked in on Sting, with Arn assisting Fleur when the referee doesn't see him by pulling back and adding pressure. Sting starts to get momentum shifting on his side and slides over to the corner slowly but surely. And just as Sting is in arm's reach of a tag, Arn Anderson perfectly timed his jump into the ring to distract the referee so that the tag Sting makes to Hulk Hogan is completely nullified. Arn then stays in and Flair rolls out, which further adds heat to the tag team. 
each of the horsemen get the minutes in on Sting, taking him apart until Sting garners an advantage. Sting finally gets a tag after what seems like an age in the ring, but Orn cuts him off instantly. A sweet-as-you-like spinebuster on Hulk Hogan gets a massive pop, but as per usual, it's time for Hogan to hulk up. Uh. <laughs> the big boot to both of the horsemen, a leg drop dropped on Orn as Sting delivers a stinger splash to Fleur with a great pop. Oh, that was perfectly timed. It was, yeah. I, I did really like that. And that's the contest, but just as quickly as it's over, Brian Pillman is out and goes straight towards Sting while Orn and Fleur dismantle Hogan. Uh, Lex runs out to help Sting, and once Sting comes to, he goes to obviously help Hogan out while Lex just completely leaves the ring. The ring is clear with just Sting in there as the Macho Man comes in and goes straight up to Sting. Sting gives Macho a right hand after a few seconds of glaring at him, and Gene is quickly into the ring to dissect all of this. For once, Macho is actually the voice of reason on the microphone, and rather than going for Sting after all that, he gives him the benefit of the doubt, with, uh, after Sting said that he didn't know where Macho was coming from after raising his arms, Sting was just fighting for his life. Hogan reiterates a couple of times that Sting saved his ass from the horseman while saying he's suspended. That's not actually been confirmed yet by WCW. Yeah, I found that very weird. For now, it looks like all three of these guys are on the same page again. So, what did you think to this, um, not only to this match, because of obviously the surrounding that you know, you're in horseman country and as we said before, it's really difficult for even four professionals to sort of get the fans on side and, you know, to get it to look right on TV. What were your thoughts on this? Yeah, it was a very good match. Uh, and as you say, like, it's very hard to to get the fans behind you. Uh, but they somehow did it. It just, it goes to show that all four people, even to some of their faults, uh, cough, cough, full garden, cough, cough, uh, that they are professionals and they know how to manipulate the crowd. It was a very hot match in the end and very enjoyable. Just the, the Arn and Rick Fleur made the match for me with their, the heel trickery as well. Very old school match. I know that's very hard, uh, very weird to say that considering it is 1995 and it is by definition old school now. But this is kind of match that you would have found like in the 80s, the late 80s in NWA. Very, very enjoyable match. Yep, I agree with that. I, I mean, this is one of very few Hulk Hogan matches that I can actually stand and watch and particularly stomaching in it four times to do this podcast. I loved the whole psychology behind it. I thought it was great. But like you said, the horsemen make it for me. Absolutely no fault for a match with Hulk Hogan in it. I have no fault. Everything just, it was just so smooth. It just went so well. Uh, I, I've got to be, uh, I can't be remiss to say one line that Bobby Heenan said in this match I completely overlooked it in my notes and I've actually just been uh, scrolling back and I found it and I honestly I, I can't believe I actually forgot about this it was a point where uh, Flair was on top of Sting and Arn uh, had Hogan outside the ring Bobby Heenan turns to uh, and he was said Tony then Bobby turns to Eric and Mongo saying like if you guys want to leave I can walk up yeah <laughs> fucking master Absolute master. I love Bobby Heenan. Yeah, and I think what he's alluding to there is, uh, I did look at the, um, the the time scale of the Nitros as they were going on. Obviously, they're on the network, and you're averaging around 55 minutes now, which obviously means that they're overrunning on a weekly basis, which they're doing on purpose, obviously, because they want to catch the, you know, the fallout from when Raw finishes dead on whatever time it is, 10 o'clock. So they're overrunning to make sure that people are flipping over and seeing that WCW is still on, and they're seeing they're actually seeing the end of what is a fucking fairly decent match here. 
so in their favour, it's worked. And as you said, Bobby Heenan just seeing what's right in front of him just comes out with some just a, another nugget, a, a, a brain nugget. And it could be interpreted in another way. It's like as you say, you know, there, he's basically alluding that they are going long, but it's also the timing of when he says it. He says it particularly when Fleur is in the ring and Fleur is on top of the faces, the people that Eric and Mongo are meant to be cheering on. Uh, often that they don't, but you know these are the people that are the faces, and Heenan is basically just making a jab at them. Like, yeah, this match is up for you guys. Fleur and Arn are actually winning this. You know, you can go home now. I'll walk up. We go back to the commentators, finally on Nitro, summarise everything. They clarify that Hogan is on probation. He's not suspended, even though Hogan's fucked that up again. Uh, and we close out this episode of Nitro. Obviously, I've just asked your opinions on that match. So, do you want to give your opinions on the Nitro as a whole? It was a very solid Nitro. Um, not so much with the in-ring competition, barring the main event. And I include the Cruiserweights. So they didn't really have a lot of time. So it was a decent match, don't get me wrong, but you know, it was very short. It was like five minutes long, something like that. You know, not enough time to get all the shit in. But for 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 the match, the main event match, should I say, the the story development, it was a very solid show. Uh, you can't really expect for a lot more from the show that's fifty five minutes long. Uh, yeah, it's a solid three stars for me. Excellent stuff. The ratings for this one go down as a 2.6 for Nitro versus Raw's 2.5. And the Raw results, as I've copied from the internet, I'm hoping that this is right. I, I can't see how it's right, but apparently this is what the internet tells me. Oh, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Owen Hart with Jim Cornette and Yoko Zuna defeated Jeff Hardy. Ah, yes. Jeff Hardy was a, a very young jobber around this time. Have you ever heard the story of how uh, they got jobs with the WWE? I don't think I have, no. No, very interesting. Basically, with uh, their own promotion, Omega, uh, what Matt Hardy used to do, he used to go to local indies and he'd be dressed up in a suit and he'd have a, seat, a suitcase, briefcase, whatever you want to call it, and he would basically just say, yes, I am from this company, Omega, and I would like such a body to wrestle for my show. You'll make so much money and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll draw a ha- uh, good house and it'll be good business for the profits, that kind of thing. <laughs> he was very much a hustler. And through one of their trainers, he was called Stallion, uh, Summit Stallion or just Stallion. What they did is through through this guy, he actually contacted the WWE and saying, yes, these two young lads are looking for work, any kind of work, job or work, anything that you've got going. And what he did for them, because he was a good friend of theirs, was saying, was saying that, yeah, they're over 18. Hmm. And with that, they both got hired as, uh, you know, just jobbers that would just come in and out now and then. And I think probably around this time, Jeff Hardy was about 16 years old. Wow. I know he was, yes, he was 16 years old when he faced Scott Hall. And there is an absolutely brilliant story between that. And I'm going to leave that for another day. But, yeah. I'm intrigued by all this, you know, I'm intrigued by the fact that Owen Hart faced Jeff Hardy now. You know, (laughs) I don't care how old he is. It could have easily been a good match, that. Yeah. You mean, you just let Owen Hart do all the work and Jeff Hardy sell. Mm. Because I don't think Jeff Hardy gets enough credit for this. He can sell like a motherfucker. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not of the opinion that Jeff Hardy has that many you know, moves in his arsenal either, so selling is, is like a strong point for him. Yeah, he doesn't need mm. them. 
That's why yeah. he's, he he can sell. He'll do he'll do all these high spots and and he'll always be entertaining regardless. Yeah. They put their body through it, don't they? Well, I say Jeff. I'd say Jeff puts his body through it more than Matt does, but well, it still fucking does. <laughs> yeah. Continuing on with the road results here, we've got Arja Kong defeating Shaprita Asari. I've no idea who that is. Ahmed Johnson defeated Rick Stockhausen. I love that word, Stockhausen. Stockhausen. Sounds like a German beer, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> and Bret Hart defeated Bob Backlund by disqualification. God, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so, so that rounds up Nitro versus Raw on this one. And Nitro number 16, December 18th, 1995 from Augusta in Georgia. Nothing important ever seems to happen in these first segments. Oh, here's WWF Women's Champion Alundra Blaze. She's reverted back to her former name of Medusa and stating that she has always been Medusa and always will be Medusa. She then presents a rather stereotypically pink WWF Women's title belt and after turning it to face the camera, she drops it in a small trash can. She says that's what she thinks of that WWF title and that now WCW is where the big girls play too before slithering off. Bobby the Brain Heenan looks like he's fallen in love with the woman, while Steve Mongo McMichael introduces his own guest, which is the seemingly newly appointed bodyguard of the commentators, William the Refrigerator Perry, who was also known as The Biscuit. But I don't think that would have worked in wrestling somehow. No. He shakes hands with Heenan, who writhes in agony at the strength of the shake, and we head to the ring during Ric Flair's entrance. So that's a pretty fucking big way to start an yeah, outro. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's not really much that we can say about it because it's very, very famous moment. But there was one thing that actually made me laugh. And again, it it goes back to the very little things, the very little nuances. This is never shown in the recaps. Is that Eric Bischoff actually takes the belt out the trash can. He looks at it, rolls his eyes and just shoves it back in. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> just brilliant. It goes to show that... They're actually looking for a little bit of rivalry with the WWF at this time. That, you know, these are yeah. the enemies. And, yeah, it, it, it goes back to you saying the stereotypical pink women's title and things like that. You know, it, yeah, again, it just, I, I love that. I just love the little things. Yeah. this Obviously, this is like one of the most infamous moments of the whole Raw versus Nitro era. And what I will say there, one, is that a woman like Medusa, who obviously I've seen wrestle further down in WCW, is not the kind of person that, you know, you associate with pink, even though, like, I think elements of her attire when she was a Lundra Blaze, I think that might have had, element, like, flashes of silver and pink in it. But the other thing that I think's always really understated about this is the fact that, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a Lundra Blaze actually main-evented Raw not too long ago in this timeline. Yes. And now she's just appearing on Nitro with the title belt and throwing it in the bin. Yeah. This, again, revisionist history of the WWE at this moment in time, but that is huge. Do you know what I mean? Like, she was the main eventer like four weeks ago on Raw. Yeah. And it goes to show that WWE are still quite pissy about this. Even though she has been inducted into the Hall of Fame, and that induction was very interesting because she actually said that. She was looking to make a moment, and she does not regret this one bit. And no, yeah. she shouldn't. She shouldn't have to regret it. You know, th- these two companies are at war. She's actually jumped ship for whatever reason. And for a lack of, you know, for, no matter what WWE think, it's a big moment. You can actually make a big deal out of this. You could sell Medusa figures holding that belt with a trash can 
and you know people WCW fans from back in the day will buy that as like a collector's item you know yeah, um, yeah I, I don't like how they shy away from it but she as you said has been main eventing Raw she's not just been on Raw she's been main eventing but WWE to this day still say that Stephanie and Lita were the first main event on Raw or Stephanie and Trish are the first were the first women to main event Raw. It's one mm. or the other. But I'll tell you one thing for free is that Trish and Lita weren't the first two women to main event Raw. It was Stephanie and Lita. Ah, so I I always thought it was Trish. I always thought they said that they were Trish no. that, that were the first main event. It was a couple of years before, maybe about three or four years before, and Rock was the first, uh, was the special guest referee for the match. Wow. Yeah. The the fact that Steph's doing it. I mean, she was God. the women's ti- uh, champion at the time. Yeah. Going back to that, by the way, it was a good three years before WWE had a women's division again. They had the women there, but they didn't have a title. I mm. think Sable introduced the women's title. I see. So now, yeah. you know, Medusa or Lundra Blazers come over to WCW, which doesn't have a women's division. Yeah. And never had a women's division, but come to think of it, even when Russo decided, you know, you know, women are going to start fighting women and all that sort of stuff, and men are going to start fighting women, blah, blah, blah. There was never a women's title. There was never a women's division. Which is a shame, because she is a very good wrestler. If you actually want to do some intergender stuff, you know, she's a believable comp- uh, opponent. I'm not really big on intergender, but I'm just throwing that idea out there. She is serviceable. She does She does get involved in intergender wrestling in 1999 oh, in WWE. that's interesting. She does. But also, when you get to 1999, you can actually look at the you know the roster of women that WCW have. So Molly Holly, who's obviously in WCW called Mona. Um, was she got... a part of Team Madness? She was, yeah. yeah. I know of that. Yeah, um, what a fucking great wrestler! Oh yeah, uh, Medusa. In fact, I think the two of them first off a couple of times on on Worldwide and maybe Thunder. I'm not sure if it made it onto Nitro or not. And a few weeks ago, Jackie was on TV as well on Nitro. Yeah, she was actually at ringside. Yeah. We didn't. I don't think we made a big deal about it, but yeah, she was there. And this is 1995. This is a good three years before she's in WWE, mm-hmm. and she was always a very good wrestler herself. Yeah, definitely. So we've got a lot to come when it comes to the women in WCW anyway, but this this is where we're starting now with uh, Alundra Blaze making a statement on WCW Nitro by throwing the WWF women's title into the trash can. Uh, into the match here, Brian, and I, I think, even though I've written quite a bit here, I'm going to let you take the lead on this one because you have been dying for this to happen. Oh, well, it... It goes to show I do have quite a fair bit of notes here. Um, yeah, I have been dying for this match. And I know a lot of it is quite revisionist. Well, not revisionist. It's it's more retroactively, but not really Eddie Guerrero from this era. It's more Eddie Guerrero from the later years. Uh, the Lions, the cheating and stealing. They could have had the most hilarious match trying to out-heal each other. So I kind of <laughs> want to see that. But... Not to take away from Rick Flair in his prime, Eddie Guerrero, the hot up-and-comer, with all these great moves. You know, it's always going to be a good match between these two. So, yeah, you're lucky here, Mark, because we didn't discuss this beforehand, but I've got a... I just yeah. knew, mate. Yeah, just you knew. know me so well, brother. <laughs> Anyways, uh, on to the match. Uh, we start with Flair teasing a handshake, and then he strokes his hair and struts. Honestly, it's just that, again, I can, 
I'm going to repeat myself so many times with, with shit like this. It's those little nuances are absolutely brilliant. You know, we know that Flurry is a heel, but he's still trying to outwit, you know, the, his opponents by saying, yeah, I can be respectful. Nope, I'm just going to uh, strut my hair and do a little strut. Absolutely brilliant. We start with takedown attempts and stir-downs are plenty. Eddie whips Flurry into the ropes, but Flurry holds on and woos. Eddie drop kicks him in the back. Love it. Eight on the drop kick scale. It's Boom. very snappy. And, you know, it's... I mean, we're going to get to a point where the drop kick scale is going to be dialed back a little bit. We're going to have to put it to people that we haven't really rated their drop kicks. Because, you know, Eddie Guerrero is always going to do an eight drop kick, a nine drop kick, a ten drop kick. You know, at this point, it's... You, you could just spe- uh, say it for me. You know. But anyways, moving on. Eddie gets on top and Fleur takes a powder. Back in the ring, Fleur with an atomic backdrop, uh, backdrop attempt. But Eddie jumps over and hits two fast drop kicks and misses a third. The, again, the drop kicks, very snappy, very fast. Absolutely brilliant. Figure four attempts is reversed into a roll-up. Fleur rallies and drops the knee into Eddie's face. Again, it's uh, usual Fleur stuff here. Very, very healy. Chops and right-hand trades in the corner. You know, you... What you can expect from a Ric Flair match. Eddie gets a Tornado DTC for a two count. Uh, brilliant. Uh, just, again, it, it, it's very hard because basically what we're saying about Eddie Guerrero in every match is, is doing a lot of the same things and the, the, it's always good. It's always good. Eddie goes up but Flair crashes him into the ropes and Eddie lands on his knee outside. At this point, Eddie starts selling the knee and obviously Flair being Flair works the knee. Figure four locked in with rock leverages, but Eddie refuses to give up. Guerrero passes out and Fleur gets the win. Now, I'm going to say one thing. There was a slight disconnect here. Mainly, I don't hate that finish by any means, but I always find it hard. If there's no working of the head, I don't believe someone's going to pass out from a leg manoeuvre. This is what made the the Bret Hart-Steve Austin match uh, more believable for this, is that Steve Austin was bleeding in that match. He'd taken a lot of bumps to the head at this point, And you believe that he's got a lot of that pain, so he's going to be physically tired and pass out. I don't believe that can happen from a leg move. Uh, maybe that's me being a little bit snobby on it. All said and done, it was a very, very good match. You know, yeah. not it wasn't too long, wasn't too short. It was just right and a very good match. Good stuff there. I mean, we're... we're... We're not seeing the exciting, young, fast-paced action we've seen from Eddie during his run of Nitros, are we? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's worth noting that Eddie, he'll have taken a lot away from this bout because obviously he's facing Ric Flair and obviously there's a structure to this match and everything. Yeah, you like have that. to slow it down. Yeah, of course, yeah, because you, obviously you're facing Ric Flair, aren't you? And and you know he got he, he got some sweet ass looking drop kicks in there, a good Hurricane Rana as well after walking on the ropes, and some good face character development as well. The match. As, as far as I'm concerned, the match does what it's supposed to do, which is it's the same as what Lex and Sting are going through at the moment, is they basically be just given a, an opponent to get some momentum going into Starcade with the triangle match that's upcoming. But I, I mean, I'd say that Ric Flair got the hardest of the three opponents. Well, actually, there's more than three opponents, but I think Flair's got the hardest opponent overall <laughs> in Eddie Guerrero, whereas later on we're going to see Sting... Uh, you know, facing people like Big Bubba Rogers, and you're going to see Lex facing the American males, you know, one and then the other. Yeah, but Ric Flair gives Eddie a lot in this match. Yeah, I mean, he does. I mean, uh, Ric Flair he's he's always very giving anyway. He's not he's not a guy that's gonna be doing 
most of the work rate. His work rate is the selling. Yeah. And Eddie Guerrero is the perfect opponent, but you still have to meet Ric Flair halfway. And Eddie does that by slowing down the pace, not really doing as many flashy moves, and allowing Ric Flair to get enough in to make him be the believable, I don't want to say underdog heel, but Ric Flair generally does work from beneath. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a sneaky heel sneaky. kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Obviously, as you've you said, as you've said there, you know it's it's up to it's up to Rick to be the sneaky heel. So that doesn't do anything to harm Eddie's persona on TV. Again, obviously because he's been on TV, you know, so many times over these nights, he must be. He, I mean, he must be up there with the you know the Stings and the Lex Lugers and the Hulk Hogan's with the amount of t- TV time, not TV time, minute by minute, but times he's been on TV. He's getting a lot of match time. Yeah. It does nothing to harm his character, as far as I'm concerned. Not, I, actually, you might even, you know, argue that you might actually feel sorry for him, so he's garnering a little bit yeah, more attention, I was gonna, a little I would, bit more fandom. I was going to say, you actually do feel sorry that it hurt for him in this match, and he does get more over with, I won't say the crowd, but he gets more over with me as a result. Yeah. Straight after the match, obviously, he's passed out from the figure four. We go to an interview, Gene just gets straight in the ring, and Arn Anderson's already come down in the match as well. Um, and it, we get the highlights from last week's assault on Paul Orndorff. Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart interrupt to say Pillman is a loose cannon. So there we go. We're yeah. we're, we're already naming, uh, dropping that name. And Sullivan threatens that Arn and Fleur should keep Pillman on a short leash. And while Fleur initially seems to agree, Arn then snatches the mic and says they're not going to back down if someone takes a shot at Pillman. So you fight one horseman and you fight them all. So this is showing a little bit of uh, animosity between the Dungeon of Doom and the Four Horsemen, although we're not really seeing much of the Dungeon of the Doom at the moment. We're just seeing sort of Sullivan and Hart. That's not a complaint. <laughs> no, it's not at all. No, no. Again, these Nitros are getting stronger as the Dungeon of Doom are taking a back seat. Yeah. To the commentators who are quickly summarising, and Heenan says, you know, you've got to look out for yourself in this business and even in life. And there are no allegiances in life, with McMichael stating that that must be why Heenan doesn't have any friends or any family. <laughs> and that if you don't make allegiances, you're just going to end up like Orndorff with your neck in your gut. Just so good. I really, really like that. Uh, Heenan then persistently looks at Mongo while mumbling something that we can't actually hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just sort of like dick dastardly and like Muttley. It's just like, suck up, suck up, suck up. Yeah, I was actually just about to say Muttley. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. really amusing. I have to say as well, I actually put this on Twitter the other day that I have taken a complete 180 on Mongo. He's, at, um, he's very enthusiastic as a commentator and sometimes comes out with some really bad lines and he makes way too many NFL references for my liking. Obviously, mm. I'm a Brit with very little knowledge of the NFL, so a lot of it is going to go over my head. So I can't really hold that against him too much. They actually are trying to get him over as somebody that's an outsider that's coming to wrestling and uh, you know, using the analogies, it will work for some. So yeah, fair play to him for that. But... Again, it's like sometimes it comes out with really uh, weird lines. He tries a little bit too hard and it just doesn't come off. But when he doesn't try too hard, when he just says something, nine times out of ten, it's going to be fucking funny. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, it's just the little things here. We're just saying like, uh, yeah, that's why you ain't got no friends and no family. It's like, that's just a brilliant line. That's just a it brilliant is. line. It's really just getting to Heenan's throat. Yeah. Um, on the commentary booth, I agree. I mean, I, I'm really enjoying Mongo at this moment in time. 
Oh, while this is going down as well, uh, Sergeant Craig Pittman's come up to ask Bobby the Brain Heenan to actually be his manager. There's a bit a bit of comedic cowardice from from Bischoff here as well that made me chuckle, which is like, oh, what now? And then as, <laughs> as soon as Pittman comes over, he's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I miss that. <laughs> Heenan, like, Heenan obviously declines this opportunity saying, I'm a broadcaster, you know, I'm not a manager, but I'll put, somebody, I'll put you in touch with somebody who can help you. And uh, Pittman says if he doesn't get help soon, he's he's not going to take any prisoners. And he says this while he's looking at Bischoff. And again, Bischoff just sort of backs away and says, "Hey, don't look at me when you say that." <laughs> just the really, just that. I suppose that little minute of going back to the commentary desk. It's probably my favourite minute at the commentary desk so far on Nitro, um, because they all just it's yeah. like a good time, yeah, it a makes good them feeling. Vulnerable to the actual wrestlers as well. Yeah. Into another match here we go where Lex Luger versus Marcus Bagwell. As I said earlier, you're going to see Lex going against, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of is just fodder just because we're running into a pay-per-view here, so we're just giving him a few squash matches. It's serviceable, this match. There's not there's not much in the way of offence from either party, really. It's, it's not much to write home about. It's pretty much just strikes, a few suplexes and crossbodies, blah, 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 whatever. Um, it's here to make Lex look good and he gets a torture rack on it and Lex gets the win going into Starcade. Gene Oakland is in the entrance way where Jimmy Hart proclaims again that Lex is the uncrowned world heavyweight champion. Sorry, <laughs> uh, yep, I just had to. I fell asleep though. Fucking Lex Luger about this being the fucking. It's the same shit every week. Shut up. Yeah, the woe is me yeah. thing, yeah. Um, Lex says that he wants everybody to see the film as to why he was the uncrowned champion uh, after having pinned and submitted his opponents little does he know that the footage actually aired last week and not this week good going there lex <laughs> yeah i miss that and they they sort of just suture off into the back again laughing and joking next up we get sting versus earl robert eaton who's accompanied to the ring by jeeves there's nothing stereotypical about that whatsoever no, not at all eric says jeeves sounds like a skin condition he <laughs> <laughs> does <Yeah>. doesn't it <laughs> who who the hell would call their son jeeves <laughs> Uh, Sting's wary of the pyrotechnics. I think he's having a little bit of PTSD from what happened a few weeks ago. I thought he nearly walked into them again. <laughs> uh, there weren't any this time, but he's keeping an eye on them anyway after nearly being caught in one. Uh, Sting has a, a bit of good banter with the crowd who keep seemingly attempting to make a Mexican wave of some sort. The match is again here just to make Sting look good. Eaton's actually, you know, technically a, a sound wrestler. As, Very as, proficient. Yeah. And whilst I don't agree with it being a stereotypical thing, he does have that British style to him. Sting takes much of the attack, but it ends with a stinger splash and a scorpion deathlock in no time at all, really. Um, and that's the end of the match. That sell from the stinger splash. Yes. Eaton sells it like a drunk being thrown out of a pub. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> he, he rolls his eyes back in the head, he stumbles, and he fucking drops forward. Absolutely brilliant. He kind of slaps Sting on the back as well. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah. Slaps Sting on the back like he'd be slapping the bouncer on the back that's, that's throwing yeah. him out. It, it's, yeah, you know, it goes back to what William Regal does as well. It's very very typical British slapstick comedy style. Mm. I, I don't really know much about uh, Robert Eaton, but that was brilliant. I, I, I just couldn't stop laughing. I actually rewound it like several times. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking brilliant selling. Absolutely brilliant. After the match, Gene is in to have a word with Sting and he says that he'll not forget what Fleur did to him and with regards to Lex, omitting his name from the list of talent that he's faced. He says he's miffed. Miffed. <laughs> All he's got to say is that he would love to make it a sixth world heavyweight title reign. And then, 
After a short break, we'll go straight into the main event, which is the Giant versus the Macho Man, who is obviously the champion for the World Heavyweight Championship. The early moments of this is spent with Macho's sleeper uh, on the Giant. Again, Macho's wrestling with his arm and he's he's not 100%. So, again, this is sort of structured to give Macho the ability to progress a storyline and to also have the match and to defend the title. Later on, Jimmy Hart goes up to check on the Giant when he gets out of the sleeper hole, but Macho bashes Giant into Jimmy, and down onto the floor he goes. This brings out the Taskmaster, and Giant soon gets the advantage after Macho tried a scoop slam. Silly boy. More time killed with a bear hug, and we come back literally mid-scoop slam from a break, but somehow Macho manages to get a very long eye rake. Like They go to all four corners of the fucking ring with this eye rake. But it's not going to give him the advantage for long as the giant again slams him with a side slam and an ele- elevated choke. Yeah, about that, about that very elongated yeah. eye rake. It's like I could actually see what they were doing, trying to put over that you really need to go to these kind of tactics to wear the giant down. But a blind giant is still a fucking giant, right? yeah. <laughs> and Macho Man is working with a dodgy arm and a sore knee and various fucking other little bits of words on her. It's like, you know, this isn't going to be a David versus Goliath moment where you actually topple the Giant. The Giant is just going to run right through you. Going further into the match, the Giant actually attempts a fucking top rope splash. Oh, my God. Almost losing his balance at the top and completely missing Macho. Like, the comms, they sort of put over the fact that, you know, the ring might have moved or the ring might have even collapsed at this point. You know what actually uh, went through my mind? Because uh, the, the classic Bobby Heenan call, and I know we're jumping well ahead here, the Goldberg title win in the Atlanta Superdome. Yeah. yeah. You know, when he hits this, the roof is going to blow off. You know, I just felt like that move. The moment he actually just hit the mat from that body splice, the roof was just going to go ping from the sheer gravitational force. <laughs> It was, it was huge and it's well worth having just a look at that little segment of this match because, holy fuck, man. Uh, because the guy, I mean, the guy was heavy in the WWE when he was having his matches then, but in WCW he was allowed to eat, you know, eat shit, smoke and all the rest of it. So he has, I think he has way more weight here. Yeah. He- which just gives more to this fucking impact of this top rope. I mean, you can even see the top rope and the turnbuckle struggling like fuck. Yeah. Like, get off me! <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, he's missed, so Macho goes up for an elbow, but it's only a two-count with the Giant kicking out huge, and then there's a drop kick from the Macho. We're seeing things from the Giant that you never thought you'd see in this match. Yeah, that drop kick was a five, by the way. I mean, you can't really expect much from um, the Giant here. You're not going to get much elevation from it. No. You know, um, it's fat ass. It's going to bring him down. On the outside, the giant has ripped up the padding on the floor and attempts a suplex, but Macho clings onto the ropes. Kind of, I kind of like that a little bit. He clings onto the ropes to avoid being taken over. One thing that was annoying me about this was the referee, and I forgot his name now. I just know he has like a mustache and stuff like Is that. Is it Randy Johnson or something like that? It it could be. Or Randy Anderson. It could be one or the other. Yeah, I'm not entirely 100%, but all I know is that he loves clambering all over these ropes. Yeah. And at this point, when Macho has obviously got this spot in mind of holding onto the ropes the referee is climbing onto the rope so he's actually interfering with what macho was planning to do um but you see it you see it over and over again doesn't matter what match he's in and i understand that the referee's a small bloke and he's got to fucking handle a guy that's like seven foot four but still you know you don't need to be climbing all over the ropes you are going to get yourself you fucking could potentially get yourself hurt here yeah 
Uh, the Giant hits the concrete with Macho clinging onto the ropes, but he's straight back up to choke slam Macho back in the ring. A leg drop later, Giant covers Macho for the pin, but out comes Hogan with a chair to break the count. Just as the referee is calling for a DQ, Hogan grabs the referee, and we've had some fucking fun with that screen grab, throws him into the corner, gives Sullivan a right hand, and cleans house of a second referee and the Giant. McMichael goes from the commentary booth with the fridge, or the biscuit, to go and calm Hogan down from potentially getting suspended, but Hogan is hot and starts on both of them, shoving them both and getting some serious fan backing from and the it. the biscuit is like, oh, crumbs. <laughs> oh, no! Come on, I had to get a dad pun on this podcast oh. at some point. <laughs> My poor lone door dad dancing and now you've got your dad joke. Hey, it took, what, eight episodes? Oh, crumbs. Back to the ring after the break. Genie's in with Hogan and Macho, who has retained the title down to that disqualification. Uh, the Giant is attempting to come back down to the ring to get his hands on Hogan with the Taskmaster and Craig Pittman pulling him back. Hogan goes to town on them all with a chair. At least Hogan's doing a better job of you know the chair shots this week than he was a couple of weeks yeah. ago. He runs back to the ring to get back on the mic to demand his title shot from Macho. And Macho says that even though he's got Flair for the title next week and then the main event at Starcade alongside a World Cup match at the pay-per-view, if he gets past them all, Hogan can have his title shot. Hogan continuously takes it upon himself to take the mic time away from Macho whilst Macho is like halfway through a sentence, which fucking really annoys me. Yeah. In the end, he does manage to get a good crowd reaction from this potential matchup. Macho finally says that he wants the chair that Hogan smashed around the giant and Sullivan's head to make some dollar-dollar. But Michael finally, as we're closing off, explains himself as they go back to the table and says he was just trying to stop Hogan from making a mistake, with Heenan saying, just stay in your seat and do your job. It's a nice bit of banter to close out the broadcast. When Hulk Hogan actually goes back into the ring and he picks up the mic and he just says, Ooh, yeah! Yeah. Yeah. I actually popped for that. Did you? Yes, because it was actually a very good impression. (laughs) I have no idea why the fuck he did it. But it was a very good, very good. And Savage saying that Hogan has gone Looney Tune again. Savage is just so brilliant with his, with his comparisons. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, the um, I think the impression, uh, the oh yeah sort of thing. Just I think it just feeds into this fact that Hulk Hogan knows that he's no longer over. Yeah, that's probably and, it. Yeah, the, I did. I did like the the Looney Tunes little bit. That did add quite a bit to the. Um, to the whole thing but it, it, it did seem that not a lot of this was no. structured it just seemed like it was yeah. all ad-lib and Savage saying I'm a positive thinker like I, I'm still <laughs> yeah that as well it's just those little things that I love about Savage love love a bit hey, of Nitro impressions again a little bit better give me a bit they are they are strong rating for Nitro here we get a 2.7 versus Rose 2.3 and we actually have dark matches at the end of Nitro here as well you didn't get my rating by the way Oh, sorry, yeah. It was a 2.5. You know, nothing spectacular. It's just a good continuation for Starcade, really. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We've got dark matches after this Nitro with the Zodiac defeating Disco Inferno. Johnny B. Bad, who's the television champion, defeating... Guess who? Yeah! And guess what it was for? title. Yeah! And the Blue Bloods, Earl Robert Eaton and Lord Stephen Regal defeated Bunkhouse Buck and Dick Slater, which just... it just kind of seems repetitive, these dark matches. However, the way that this has been structured, obviously, because it's around Christmas time, you've got the main Nitro here live. You've got 
the diet matches which I've just gone through and then you are taping what's going to appear to be Christmas Day's Nitro the Lure next week or in seven days or whatever. So whoever has just purchased like $20, $25 ticket to see WCW Nitro on this day is actually getting a pretty stacked fucking card here. You're getting a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, not too bad. Obviously, the raw rating, as I said, was a 2.3, and the raw results were in a dark match. Bret Hart, Razor Ramon, and The Undertaker defeated Isaac Yankum, DDS, Sid, and Yokozuna. Jesus Christ, the girth in that match. The what? Girth? The Yeah, fucking all fucking three like, really thick guys. Like I don't want to be in the <laughs> ring with them. You said girth. <laughs> I did, and I did that on purpose. <laughs> uh, Jeff Jarrett defeated Fatu via disqualification. Buddy Landell defeated Bob Holly. Razor Ramon, who is the WWF Intercontinental Champion, defeated Yokozuga. Yokozuga? He defeated Yokozuna by countout to retain said championship. Oh my god, beef just come out my nose. Oh dear. I bet that felt good. It's Desperados. It always feels good. <laughs> Into Nitro number 17, the taped one, which aired on December 25th, 1995, again from Augusta in Georgia. Straight into the match here, which is Lex Luger versus the second half of the American Males, which is Scotty Riggs. Lex gets a shot at the second member of the American Males. I'm just repeating myself now. <laughs> In another prelude to his Starcade Triangle match, there's not much to write home about here, although Scotty Riggs actually does an excellent run and jump over the top rope and out of the ring while holding Luger's arm. I really, really like that. Oh, yeah, that was spectacular. It guillotined his arm on the top rope in a spot that didn't get as much attention as I thought it should. And he got some drop kicks in as well. He certainly did. How would you rate him? They were a solid eight on both of them. Excellent stuff. Yes, the the leapfrogging into the two drop kicks, you know, very slick. He is easily becoming one of my favourite, like, performers in, in in the little bit in the little bits that he's getting these little things mean a lot hmm. you know and i think he might be on tap potential yeah i mean the matchup itself isn't uh isn't actually a bad one i'm just not going into much detail about it and i thought the two styles actually meshed pretty well as well considering it's lex luger yeah yeah as usual obviously it's the torture rack that gets luger the win and the momentum going into starcade so it's not a bad showing for scotty riggs here at all bagwell didn't do too badly last week either and as you said, you know, Riggs has, has, has showcased you know, a couple of things of what he can actually do, his athletic ability. And I mean, that, you know, that jump onto the floor, guillotining Luger's arm on the rope, I just, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. And I, I really, really dug it. Yeah, I actually brought down very unique manoeuvre. Because mm. it was, I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that. And this is, we're, we're talking in 2020 when there are, the the fast paced high flying uh, flip do style is very common these days. I I can't remember seeing that kind of move. That move looks like something like Daniel Bryan would do, and I I I, I can't recall him ever doing yeah. that. Yeah, very unique. Really liked it. Very, and the thing is as well, talking about Scotty Riggs here, he's no cruiserweight. No, he's not. He's a big guy. Yeah. So for him to do it, it just I, I mean. It's almost as if the commentary just completely glossed over it because they were talking about something else and the crowd just didn't react to it either. But honestly, I mean, if you can if you can find this match, you can just find that little segment. It's worth having a look at because it's really it's a really cool move. Yeah, and not a bad match. No, not at all. Not at no. all. It was quite enjoyable. Genies with Sting at the entranceway. Uh, random Pyro scares the pair of them. Like, 
<laughs> I just love because I love Sting coming out now because I get to see him shit himself over Pyro. Yeah, he he, he is very paranoid. What I will say though, <laughs> I'm getting very tired of these Mean Gene segments. Not Mean Gene himself. Don't get me wrong. It's the fact that it's the same cast every week now. Yeah. It's like it's Sting, it's Luger, it's Savage, it's Hogan. It's like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, maybe Luger, but and Hogan, but it. If you're doing it every week, you just feel like no one else is getting the time to showcase their talents. You know, their their promo talents. I want Eddie Guerrero to be interviewed. Like, yeah. you know, what's going what's going through his mind? What about this WCW cruiserweight division that's coming up? What does he think? Yeah, you've got to give other people a chance here. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that as well. These these just seem like you know space filler again. Whilst and it's always always the same subject as well and Sting actually says that himself in this yeah he does so he kind of like why why are you asking me about Luger again I've explained myself several times it just it just seemed to me like Sting was just thinking what I was thinking yeah you know I've had enough of these interviews I've kind of written something a little bit different because <laughs> Sting kind of keeps worming his way out of actually answering these questions so I've kind of put in brackets we'll answer the fucking question then Steve but, you know, yeah. he's getting antsy at Gene asking the question, but he's not giving Gene a straight answer. But, yeah, as a as a general thing, these segments are getting a little bit tiresome, so we're, we're all embodying Sting's sort of aggression towards Gene on these things right now. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. Like, you know, we get it. It's yeah. been drilled into us every single week. Wugu is Jimmy Hart. Sting is his friend. Sting doesn't agree with his business decisions, but he's still his friend. We get it. We fucking get it. You know, I'm with Sting here all the way. You know, yeah, don't answer it anymore. You've answered yeah. it already. Twice in the last three weeks. Well, the good thing is this is Monday, and on Wednesday, Starcade's going to be out of the way, and we're not going to have to ask the, or answer this question ever again. He, he, he does say that, you know, maybe, maybe Lex has snapped for the wrong reason or the right reason. He also says that he's ready to hook on the Scorpion Deathlock onto Ric Flair and never let go. So after that, we go straight into a, uh, a match with Sting versus Big Bubba Rogers. Sting gets a second entrance, though this time he does get a lot of pyro. And he nearly walks into them again. He nearly walks into them again, yeah. Um, and I mean, what, what did we say on the last podcast about the excess pyro in the Turner warehouses? They really are fucking trying to get rid of it now, aren't they? It just sounds like they're trying to off Sting as well. <laughs> what have they got against Sting... <laughs> it's always Sting, isn't it? You know, get injured. We want you off for eighteen months. Yeah, we want you to turn emo as well. Well, if it, if he does, is he is he going to be called Singe instead of Sting? <laughs> See, you t- you haven't got me for the dad jokes, well, but you know, there's one yourself. Okay. But I found that funny. I like. <laughs> Into the match, Bubba's mostly with the offense and Sting with the odd hope spot playing to the fans when he gets a chance to. Bischoff announced that Hogan is indeed suspended until 1996 now, so Hogan let's slip that little nugget of information way too early. The end of 1996 actually isn't really that long away because it is. this is airing on December 25th. Sting gets the win somewhat unexpectedly as Bubba... I've written Bubby. <laughs> Bubby? Yeah. Big Bubby Rogers. That's, that's him now, he's Bubby Rogers. <laughs> Bubba tries to set him up for a top rope move and Sting rolls him up into a small package which um, gets the pin uh, completely against the run of play. Sorry, sorry, you are so missing football against the run of play. Yeah, there was that was the only way I could explain it. Yeah, it is right, but yeah, we've made, that's two football analogies in this podcast alone. Yeah. <laughs> Football's back, yay. Um, yay. 
Back to Gene, who's wearing a Santa hat and all, alongside Lex and Jimmy Hart. Again, like you said, it's a repetitive fucking thing. Lex says that you won't yeah. find a more premier matchup. I actually quite liked how Lex put this over a little bit. You're not going to find a more yeah. premier matchup than Lex Luger, Sting, and the Nature Boy Ric Flair, but he remains adamant that he is the uncrowned world heavyweight champion. Again, he's pushing the long-term friendship between him and Sting. And then Craig Pittman comes out to ask Jimmy Hart if he can manage him. Hart gets him to take off his shirt, which is really homoerotic. And he compares his physique to Lex Luger's, which is even more homoerotic. And he says, why the hell would I manage you? He makes a pun about a few good men. And Lex and Hart leave the entranceway laughing their asses off. Yeah, the body chairman wasn't very nice. But... It also Yeah, it's not aged well, has it? I no, didn't even think of that. It, it hasn't aged well, but also this is a guy that has been coming out with a giant recently. And I know a giant, a lot of it is about his size and all that, but he is a big guy. He's not a body guy, Jimmy. You know, uh, make your mind up. Do you like these guys or not? Do you want dad bods or not? I mean, at the end of the day, you don't need to look good to be fucking strong, do you? No, you don't. And let's be fair, like... As we said, Lex Luger, you look at his physique and, you know, it, it is a very stereotypical wrestler, what, you know, what you want, you know, and we can understand that. But for fuck's sake, Hulk Hogan at this time doesn't have that body. He just has arms and you were fucking managing him. Maybe that's why he turned on him. He yeah. didn't have all the abs. And as we're going further into this hmm. episode, we're going to see Jimmy Hart and Ric Flair kind of in cahoots with each other as well. And Ric Flair is not exactly, you know in the greatest shape of his life is it no. cardiovascular he's he's perfect you know he can go for a 60 minute match but you know he's, he's just not ripped so into another match here and uh, this is another one that I was interested to talk to you about because I wanted to talk about Dean Malenko just as a whole interesting it's Dean Malenko versus JL yeah not Mr. JL anymore yeah although the commentary team are still referring to him as Mr. JL you see in so many matches that people are thinking you know what to do next if the opponent is going to be ready for it or whatever. And the one thing I've noticed with Malenko is that he will just do moves irrespective of all that. And he'll just keep, he just has this ability to keep the action fluid. Yes. And his ring positioning and his vision is something that's just so perfect as displayed with the prime example in this match is uh, there's actually a gut wrench onto a top rope rather than just slamming him down with a powerbomb. He has to spin him around so that you're on the TV side, but also to, to give it the maximum sort of impact and not sort of have to walk around the ring to find the right spot. Yeah, you can see why he was a producer for WWE for so long. And we're talking, like, what, 2001 when he retired, up until last year? Mm. Yeah, you can see why, because he just has that inane ability to know where the hard cam is, where to be at the right time, and it looks so effortless. If you don't actually concentrate on what he's doing, you can actually easily miss that. It's more like a, a subconscious thing that you you realise that this is why he's such a good wrestler. This is why he is just... I can't even... It's revered, isn't it? I mean, he's always been revered in the business. Yeah, very well. He's always been called underrated. Yeah. And I can definitely see why. And I don't like the terms underrated and overrated. But, you know... In certain cases, there's no other way to describe something, and he's that. That is the perfect description of Dean Malenko. Yeah, it it comes to him so effortlessly. 
and it's almost as if you know he's he's already got the plan in his head he's he's like people were teaching me how to play pool and all that sort of stuff is you don't think about your current shot you think about your next shot and if you can you think about the shot after that whilst you are playing your current shot you need to know where the white ball is going to end up at all times Malenko is exactly like this in a yeah. wrestling ring he knows he's already three three moves ahead he already knows what's going to happen irrespective of whether you think you know or even if you don't know, he's just going to pick you up, he's going to slam you down, and we're going to move on. Brilliant. This is just such a joy to watch, and I think probably, as you said, underrated. I think his size probably had something to do with that, especially when you go up to Connecticut. You know, you've got to be a big lad in the big pond. He's a small guy. He's not tall, but he has a physique. Yeah. You know, he's not... You know, as a small guy, um, I think I'm probably taller than him. I won't want to bump into him on a fucking dark, rainy night when he's pissed off. No, I'd like to think that, you know, when, when he's sort of walking down the street, he sort of has an intrusive thought about every single person that he meets and he just puts them in a different submission. So if you met him one day, like at a meet and greet, he'd be like, hi, Dean, I'm a big fan. He'll just, he'll just be like, Texas Club League. Yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> um, A couple of moves uh, stand out to me here, but I mean... I didn't write much simply because I was just in awe with, with Malenko and his, his, his methodic way of just dismantling his opponents in the ring. Um, we do get a tilt-to-whirl head scissors from JL, which I thought was really, really nice. And the finish is Malenko with a fireman's carry on the top rope, dropping JL onto his knee, stomach first. Oh, my God. pretty cool. So gnarly. Yeah. He locks, a, he locks in a leg lock and JL is just tapping all the way home. It's an impressive quick showing for Malenko because they weren't they weren't given much time and I think that they they made the most of it. Yeah, it was a very good match for what it was. I have to say something as well is we actually glossed over this, but the first attack from Malenko was a drop kick to JL's back. Ah, okay. It was an eight. An eight. We're getting a lot yes. of eights in this episode. Very yeah, a lot of them are very similar. You know, they've got a little bit of hype to them and. Uh, got the snap to them and he just had it it was like from the off the moment JL turned his back he's like fuck it drop kick you know absolutely brilliant I, you know he, he is a guy that's kind of like fallen under the radar for me over the years uh, his WWE run left a lot to be desired uh, but we're also talking that the guy at this point he was coming towards the end of his career mm. it, they were probably looking at especially when they were very ageist back then they, they still are in many ways but someone that was in their early 40s at that point was like, you know, passive prime, very expendable. Let's use this guy to train a new breed. So, unfortunately, I didn't really see much from him that really impressed me in WWE. But here, yeah. seeing him, you know, a guy in his mid-30s, but he's, I'd like to say that at this point, he's probably heading through his prime. And he's just so good. So so good. Well, we've got a good a good three years. Is it three years? Ninety six, ninety seven, four years before he ends up going to the WWF with the four. Nineteen ninety nine, he uh, joins WWE. So we're looking at at least another three years, and there is one match that sticks out in my head in particular that I think you're absolutely going to fucking love, and I think it happens in ninety six. I could be wrong, uh, and it is just Dean Malenko versus Rey Mysterio Jr. and it is fucking awesome. It's really I, fucking good. Well, so that 
is um, something for us to look forward to, and it's all to come on the Nitrogen podcast. I'm drooling at the thought of that match. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to power through all these fucking podcasts now just to get to that match. Yeah, can we just like time travel? We, I can't. I, I still can't believe that like the next podcast that we record is going to be, you know, the year, uh, you know, the year of wrestling. Yes, we're, we're there yeah. already. Yeah. It's all just going to fucking change. The next, you know, the next 20 odd podcasts that we're going to be doing, ladies and gentlemen, are just going to be unbelievably fucking good. Oh, I can't wait. I really cannot wait. Closing up onto the end of 1995 here on Nitro, we've got this match, which has just finished, obviously, and Gene is with Ric Flair promoting the main event title match. Jimmy Hart comes out to apologise for the Kevin Sullivan problem last week in the promo after he'd uh, defeated Eddie Guerrero. Jimmy suggested he be there as the manager of the Nature Boy in his title match tonight to give him the significant advantage. Flair tells him to grab a chair and get the party organised because it's time to style and profile. And I just fucking love this. So we go into the match. Ric Flair, who's going to be accompanied by Jimmy Hart, is going to face off against the macho man Randy Savage, who is the World Heavyweight Champion for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. I brought Jimmy Hart down here by accident. Jimmy? (laughs) Uh, it's not long before Fleur is in his own move. The figure four, after a bit of brawling between the two, there's a bit more brawling and Fleur himself attempts his own figure four, but Macho locks in a small package for a two count. Jimmy gets a few shots on in on Macho after he ends up on the outside of the ring and Rick takes further advantage as we go into a break. As we come back, I'm quite surprised that there hasn't been a count out because they've been out of this ring for quite a while. Macho is sent into a guardrail and Macho is proper struggling here, so he attempts to grab a chair that is is removed by the referee in the end. Macho here is just like really drunk. You know, you were talking about, you know, Bobby Eaton sort of <laughs> being the drunk man leaving the bar. <laughs> Macho here is just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, re- it's really weird to see. It's, it's almost as if he's really struggling with this fucking chair. It's like, oh, fucking hell, this is a little bit heavy. Snapped into a few two views. Yeah, one or two. Yeah, um, it, yeah, it kind of looks like the fans are actually holding him back, right? Because he gets mobbed <laughs> by fans, and when he actually gets the chair, it looked like one of the fans were actually holding on to it, like, no, no, we don't want you on probation as well. No, <laughs> there was a weird setup there as well, weren't it? When he went into the guardrail, there was like no fans there, there was no chairs there, there was nothing. No, and it was just kind of weird to see all that space. Yeah, and the fans just ran there and mobbed him, and mm. so they must have brought a chair with them. I wonder if that was a direction, like, you know, a cameraman had, like, heard somebody in his ear to say, right, those three fans at the front, get them to run up. I'm like, okay, yeah. Because what fan's going to, like, say, no, I ain't doing that. No, well. Of course they're going to do yeah, it. Of course, be yeah. part of the fucking show. Get on TV. Yeah. So maybe that's what happened. Fleur continues the onslaught with Jimmy taking shots when he sees the opportunity to do so. And Fleur concentrates on the injured arm, using the rope as leverage to apply pressure. Matt Shaw with three very fatigued pin attempts from some reactionary comeback shots, uh, but he's cut off by the vintage Fleur mule kick to the groin in the corner. We go to another break as Fleur is on top, because obviously we're overrunning again on TNT for like the third straight week. Back from the break, and Matt Shaw is on the comeback trail. He goes high risk to the outside, which um, fails dramatically. Matt Shaw is taking lots of punishment from Fleur, even after a brief glimpse of hope with a sleeper hold. Fleur works the leg and again to the figure four, using the ropes again for added pressure and for the heat as well. Macho starts to mount small pockets of a comeback, but the match has turned into a brawl between the two men at this point. Once thrown into the ropes, Jimmy Hart holds on to Macho's leg. 
Flair attempts to seize the advantage, but Macho just unloads some seriously shoot-looking right hands, just as Lex Luger comes down to get involved. He goes straight to Macho, and those two end up in a corner fighting. Sting comes down and is cut off by Ric Flair in the other corner, as the commentators question who he's come out to help. Sting gets off a Stinger splash, and Macho dispatches Lex. Macho and Sting get into a shoving match in the middle of the ring, and that will close off the very last Nitro, of 1995 which overran and that's just literally days you know two days before Starcade we've left it on a, on a on a knife's edge sort of thing nobody knows who to trust when it comes to Lex or Sting or whoever what would you say to that main event yeah I think the main event dragged on a little bit too long for my liking yeah. there were a lot of filler in it but mm. in terms of story development again it's very solid um we're going into Starcade with Sting and Savage at odds with each other because Sting came out and it looked like he was just trying to save Luger. You know, he didn't really have a care in the world for anybody else. He was trying to save Luger. But he yeah. and Savage are friends as well and Luger is getting in the middle of that. And, you know, I think at this point, Savage has every right to question Sting's motives. You know, this is the kind of story that I like. It's not overcomplicated. It's very simple. And, yeah, story development-wise, very solid ending. Show-wise, not the best. No. No. Um, Again, it's a Christmas episode, so we can't really expect too much. But, yeah, it's a a solid two out of a five for me. A very solid two. I want to be ca- I want to be kinder and give them a two point five because it's Christmas. But I think you also taped it a week in advance. You've got no fucking excuses as well. No, I mean that's one thing that I always have in my head. If I know that a shit, if I know that a show's taped, it kind of loses a little bit of glitz. Even though it could be just produced the exact same way, for some reason in my own head, it just kind of loses a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of that shine. And I don't get why. And I just kind of felt like. I kind of felt like for this episode, I, I really don't get it. I don't. It's my own psychology, I suppose. But I think it's because it's a uh, a live show is a very reactionary thing. Yeah. And you've and I think in your head you can't react to something the same when it's taped. Yeah. It's kind of like getting. It's a subconscious thing. Like just a reminder that this has already happened. So why are you cheering for this or, or what have you? And yeah, I, I totally understand that. I really do. Yeah. So the final rating is a 2.5 versus no raw because there was no raw on this Monday. and Not even a tape one. That's interesting. Not, not even a tape one. But it was Christmas Day, so I presume that they just decided they weren't going to do it. Oh, they... so much for being the longest running weekly episodic TV show in history, guys. <laughs> to be fair, in 1995, I think... I think I think Nitro went unopposed twice at least, and this is this would be one of them. There could be three. But they still had a tape show. Yeah, what about Raw? Where was their tape show? Very true. Yeah. And as it's two days before Starcade, rather than uh, leaving it for the next podcast, because we want to start a fresh clean slate 1996 on the next podcast of the Nitrogen podcast, the results from Starcade 1995 are as follows. Dark match between Diamond Dallas Page and Dave Sullivan. Whoa, he had a new opponent. Oh, fucking hell. I know. Um, Diamond Dallas Page won that one. And in the other dark match, the American Mills, Marcus Alexander Badwell and Scotty Riggs defeated the Blue Bloods, who consisted of Earl Robert Eaton and Lloyd Stephen Regal. 
Into the actual pay-per-view itself, uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, who was accompanied by Sonny Ono, defeated Chris Benoit in the first match of the World Cup of Wrestling, giving <laughs> New Japan Pro Wrestling a 1-0 lead. Oh, that was a match I want to see. Was, it was a good match. It wasn't great, but it was a good match. The second one of these, Koji Kinemoto, again accompanied to the ring by Sonny Ono, who is the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion, defeated Alex Wright, in the World Cup of Wrestling match number two, which gave New Japan Pro Wrestling a 2-0 advantage. If you're going to go back and watch that, Brian, which I have a funny feeling that you might do, there is the most beautiful drop kick into a head scissors you are going to see from Alex Wright. And if I do not get a text message from you saying, holy fuck, that was awesome, I'll be very surprised. I'll be watching that tomorrow. (laughs) On to the third one here, Lex Luger, who's accompanied by Jimmy Hart, defeated Masahira Chono, who was accompanied by Sonny Ono. That gives New Japan Pro Wrestling a 2-1 advantage in the World Cup of Wrestling. That gives Sonny Ono free paychecks. <laughs> He's going to get more. Johnny Bibad, who's accompanied by Kimberly, she's no longer called the Diamond Doll, defeated Masa Saito, who was accompanied by Sonny Ono, which ties the thing up at 2-2. Interestingly, what you'll see in this match uh, at the beginning is Sonny Ono cutting a promo on Kimberly, saying that she belongs in the kitchen uh-huh. and that she has no place in a ring, which is fairly amusing. Uh, Kimberly does quite a decent job of handling herself in this one. So there's a little bit of camaraderie between Sonny Ono and Kimberly as the match is going on. But the match finishes with an over the top rope disqualification, which made no fucking sense whatsoever. And I'll explain why in a second. I remember you ranting about this on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Shinjiro Otani, who was accompanied by Sonny Ono, defeated Eddie Guerrero in the World Cup of Wrestling match number 5, which gave New Japan Pro Wrestling a 3-2 advantage. Randy Savage defeated Tenzan, who was accompanied to the ring by Sonny Ono, in a World Cup of Wrestling match number 6, which makes it 3-3. I'll tell you something, if smartwatches were around in 1995, Sonny Ono's already got his 10,000 steps. <laughs> he has. And in the tiebreaker, Sting defeated Kensuke Sasaki, who was accompanied to the ring by Sonny Ono. Oh, God, that name. It still uh, fills me with dread. I just think you're going to say Ken, uh, Kendo Suzuki. Kendo Suzuki. Nope. Yeah. And funny, when you said Tensai, I thought you said Tensai as well. Like, oh, my God, did he go back that far? <laughs> so in the seventh one in the tiebreaker, Sting defeated uh, Sasaki to bring the cup home for Team WCW against New Japan Pro Wrestling. Kensuke Sasaki, at this point, is still the WCW United States Heavyweight Champion because, obviously, the title wasn't up in this. And the reason why I say that the Johnny B. Bad thing makes absolutely no fucking sense is because Sting and Kensuke Sasaki actually go over the top rope like once or twice in this fucking match and nothing's said about it. The referee sees it and there's no... In fact, the commentators make reference to it once and this just goes to show that there's some sort of confusion as it pertains to the the rules of a fucking wrestling company. Uh, There's three matches in between this. Between Johnny B. Bad, then you've got Eddie Guerrero, then you've got Randy Savage, and then you've got Sting. Between Johnny B. Bad and Sting, though, you've just had a rule change. And that sort of stuff, I might be nitpicking, but that sort of stuff really fucking pisses me off. So yeah, I did have a little bit of a tirade on Twitter about that one. Yeah, it pisses me off too as well, because this kind of thing, it should be... Pretty, it, it, it should be very concise. Mm. Like, I know that back in 
I, I want to say 1992, WCW had a light heavyweight division and it kind of got left by the wayside when I think it got vacated or some shit like that. And whoever came in, I want to say Bill Watts or somebody by that kind of name, they basically just stopped uh, the uh, going to the top rope or going over the top rope, made it illegal so that basically if you went over the top rope, you were dis- automatically disqualified. We have seen so many people go over that top rope in these Nitros in 1995. It's been three years since that. In three years... You still don't know what the fucking rule is. It's not just a one pay-per-view. It's three years of this shit then, isn't it? I imagine that this is not the first time that someone has been disqualified for going over the top rope in those yeah. three years. Yeah, I, I'm i with you on that 100%. Yeah, the continuity, obviously, it needs to be there. It's, it's a big deal to me, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna move on from that because obviously I'm just gonna get fucking wound up about it and I'll just end up tweeting. WCW have won the uh, tournament against New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's close, and but there's not gonna be any respite for Sting whatsoever because he's up again next, and Ric Flair and Lex Luger are gonna face off in another triangle match. So I know that I said I wasn't gonna get irate anymore. But now I've got to get irate about this fucking triangle match for the number one contendership of the heavyweight title who will then get a world heavyweight championship shot against Macho Man in the next match. Right. I didn't actually know the rules of a triangle match. I thought it was going to be a three-way dance. That's what I thought. I thought, you know, three heavyweights here, the the way that they're going to manufacture it is somebody's going to get knocked out of the ring. They're going to have a couple of minutes of one versus one action and then the other guy's going to come in, another person will get knocked out of the ring, have a breather for two minutes and then that's how they're going to work. That's usually how three-ways work. (laughs) He said (laughs) three-way. That's not how this works. So this is tag rules. Okay, so it's one-on-one. What? It's one-on-one tag rules. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We broke Brian. Unfortunately, I have to explain this as well, so you might get even even more fucking frustrated by this. So obviously, Ric Flair's come out of... Uh, come out here by himself. Lex Luger's come out here by himself, and Sting's come out here by himself. Uh, to my recollection, I can't remember there being a manager for any of these three. And as far as I can remember, it's Sting and Ric Flair that start off in the ring. Any opponent, any any wrestler here is allowed to tag out, and whoever tags in is then one on one with whoever is in the ring. The way that you win this is by either pinfall or submission. You can be disqualified or whatever. But as this match goes on, and this match goes on for half an hour... How can you be disqualified in a fucking three-way dance? Triangle match. Well, triangle match. Whatever you (laughs) want to fucking call it. Triple threat. Fucking freeze company. Whatever you want to call it. How can you be disqualified in a match like that? This is where it's going to get fucking really either hilarious or frustrating. Believe me, it was frustrating me watching it. Believe me. It just It's so nonsensical. So, again, as I said, it's it's tag rules, and you can tag out, and obviously... So, if Sting and Ric Flair are in, then Ric Flair tags out. It's Sting then versus Lex Luger, which is exactly what, you know, they've been promoting on Nitro for the past God knows how many fucking weeks. We've been talking about this fucking triangle match for God knows how many weeks. 
and now we've got this fucking shit show. We're going to run down numerous pin attempts, numerous submission attempts, where the person who has not been tagged in, the person who's on the apron, does fuck all. If you are on the apron and you can see that somebody's about to get pinned or about to submit, you run in there and stop them from being pinned or from submitting. Why? Because you will lose your number one contendership. Yes, it's not an elimination. Do Ric Flair, do Lex Luger, and do Sting run in the ring when there's a pin attempt or a submission? No. Anyway, I'm going to cut a long story short here because we could dissect this. I mean, we could watch it for half an hour. We could just shit all over it because even though these three should know perfectly well you know, what to do in a ring, they've been given some fucking seriously shit hands to deal with here. And obviously have been told, well, if two people are in the ring, don't fucking go in there. Long story short, Ric Flair defeated Lex Luger and Sting because Lex Luger and Sting... We're both counted out of the ring after falling out of the ring, both going out of the ring, close lining each other out of the ring, whatever the fuck. Ric Flair wasn't even tagged in for a start. The main thing here to take away is obviously that Ric Flair is now the number one contender and he's going to get a ta- an instant title shot against Randy Savage, but also that Lex Luger has prevented Sting from getting back in the ring and answering the 10 count. Sting is literally about to run through the bottom rope at the count of nine, and Lex Luger pulls his foot, which causes Sting to slip and trip and fall and doesn't answer the 10 count. So Ric Flair is now the number one contender. I know finishes aren't WCW's strong point, but... This is up there with the worst. <sighs> yeah, I am inclined to agree. Mm. And So I'm glad that I've had to explain that for everyone. I... To be honest with you, even with you explaining it, I don't think it's been explained properly. Like, (laughs) all I'm going to say is I'm not going to subject anybody go back and fucking watch it because you'll just tear your head out. I'm flabbergasted. And you know what? I'll tell you what, like, that sounds like one of the worst finishes ever. And it wasn't that long ago that a Hell in a Cell match, a Hell in a Cell match was stopped because... One of the guys went too far with a sledgehammer. Yeah. I, I, I mean, think about that. Like, you know, the sledgehammer has been fucking used in countless bloody Hell in a Cell matches, but somebody went too far by using one, apparently. And this sounds worse than that. You know, and... And the reason why it sounds worse is because this isn't a fucking stipulated match. It was a fucking three-way dance. A triple threat. Mm. Whatever you want to fucking call it. It's got so many bloody different names. But... You know, it, it's a simple match that you cannot get wrong. You can't just adjust rules to see fit. I can actually see a little bit in the Hell in Cell adjusting the rules, to, you know, just to further a story or to end a story or whatever. But this is completely unacceptable. Yeah. You made disqualifications a possibility in a fucking match with three people. Like, yeah. you know, without it being an elimination as well. And then... Somebody wins by two people fucking getting counted out when they're not the legal man. Count out shouldn't even be a thing in this match. This is what I don't get. You had two legal men, they were both counted out, so the person who wasn't legal then just wins the, the match by default. It, it, it is it is nonsensical. It's fucking um, stupid. And at your yeah. main show as well. At your biggest With show. With your main stars. Yes. 
Oh my god. I mean, it's not like you're shitting on, you know, fucking Bobby Eaton and fucking Alex Wright and fucking Eddie Guerrero or whatever. No. You, you're shitting on, you know, the three fucking contenders for the World Heavyweight Championship. The the the, the whole fucking episode of Nitro is built around these people. Yeah. I have to wonder if this had something to do with creative control because it's long been I wouldn't even say rumoured at this point. It's been fucking uh been actually stated that Hulk Hogan had creative control in WCW. Now Hulk Hogan's not in this match, but there's two uh there's three people who could potentially have creative control and I think Sting is a very giving guy. And I think Rick Flair is a very giving guy, but he can be very egotistical as well. And Lex Luger is Lex Luger. You give Lex Luger creative control, and there's a fucking big problem straight away. Because, of course, he's going to be like, well, I'm not being pinned. You know, uh, we'll have to do this instead. That kind of shit. Uh, I'm just spitballing, but I'm just... So frustrated by that. Just from you yeah. not even having to watch it, just you telling me it. I'm so so frustrated. Well, it's it's run down and it's diluted what they've been doing on Nitro for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, to to end something like that again, like I said earlier, is just completely nonsensical. And it makes Sting and Luger look so bad as well. Well, I mean, the only thing that you can really pull out of this is that Lex has cost Sting a, a number one contendership. Yeah, that's the only you know that's the only story. So you've here. got a story going forward into nineteen ninety six where they'll go with it. We don't know yet. But that could have been um, done in another way, you know, like Sting's on fucking top of Fleur and Luger fucking attacks him with yeah. a chair because he can't be yeah. DQ'd. There you go, and that's just me fucking spitballing. That's just me going, yeah. Here's a, a better idea. Straight yep. away, and it's an idea that actually makes fucking sense. That makes no sense. Now I'm hot. <laughs> See, this has the ability to do that, and you haven't even seen it. But we can't spend, you know, we can't, we could spend all night fucking talking about it, dissecting it, and shitting on it. But we won't do because there's still the uh, the main event, the World Heavyweight Championship. Ric Flair's obviously just won his um, number one contendership. We've also got a dark match at the end, and of course we've got um, the Nitrogen Podcast Awards for the WCW's elite and not so elite, <laughs> as meaningless as it is. We're actually going to give uh, our own opinions on who is and isn't deserving of an award from the Nitrogen Podcast. We're going to go into 1996 with a new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Ric Flair, the number one contender, defeated Macho Man Randy Savage to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship in 8 minutes and 41 seconds. Ugh, that's a short match for a title match. It is, but you've got but to think, like, Rick, even though Ric Flair didn't spend half an hour in the ring, he did spend a large chunk in the ring in the triangle yeah, match. Yeah, and there were you know, a fuck ton amount of matches coming up as well, so you know, leading yeah. up to the match. So, understandable, and but it is a little bit sad that a match, the main event match, had to be cut time. You know, yeah, and I mean, being, being the um, being the conspiracy theorist that I am, as you were saying about creative control and stuff like that, whilst I'd, I disagree that I think that creative control kind of did anything in that triangle match, I think it was just WCW trying to forward just one storyline. Yeah, I wasn't saying that that was the case. I'm just saying yeah. that I was wondering if that was a possibility. 
I, I mean, I, I, I will say the same about this now, and I will say that I don't think that Randy Savage wanted to drop the belt to Hulk Hogan. So what they've done is now they've used Ric Flair as a go-between, and it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, somewhere down the line in 1996, when Hogan comes back from his suspension slash filming whatever TV show he's filming this month... Um, oh, so we're getting a few months without Hulk Hogan then? I don't know how long it goes on for, mate, to be honest. Oh Well, I won't miss him. <laughs> The dark match which closes out Starcade 1995 is Kensuke Sasaki, the WCW United States champion, defeating the one-man gang to retain the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Whoa, one-man gang was in WCW with yeah. the one-man gang character. Yeah. I don't know why the... I don't know why one-man gang. I don't know why they've continued to allow Sasaki to have the WCW United States Championship. But, again... Obviously, I'm hoping them questions will be answered in 1996. So, insert cheesy music here and welcome. I hope you've got your cum buttons and I hope you've got your um, bow ties. I hope you've got your suit on. I hope you've got champagne in hand because these are the most prestigious awards in podcast history. These are the Nitrogen Podcast 1995 Awards for Wrestling Excellence. And by excellence, I also mean excellently shit. Oh, no, shit, that's the WWE Hall of Fame tune. (laughs) So, Brian, I'm going to ask you, obviously, WCW Nitro only started in September. We've covered four months of WCW Nitro here now. We've gone through the whole of 1996. We've got quite a few storylines. We've seen some good, we've seen some bad, we've seen some evil, we've seen some hilarious. Um, The first one is uh, Most Hated Wrestler of the Year. Uh, that's easy. That's Lex Luger. Sorry, Lex. <laughs> Sorry, Lex. You know, if I could give it to the Dungeon of Doom as a collective, I would do, but yeah, it has to be you. Yeah. Big shout out to Duncan Miller, who will be delighted that you didn't say Shark. Mm, yeah. Well, I can't be too hard on Shark. Next one. Who would be your most popular wrestler of the year? Oh, most popular wrestler of the year. Um, well, I am straight away, two people come to mind, and. I will say one thing. I'm going to surprise the listeners. Alex Wright is not one of those people, and that's only because he's not been featured enough on this show. Um, I'm going by two people that have surprised me, uh, both not really for much of the ring-ring work, but more for their character. The two people that I've nominated for this are Brian Pillman, and Disco Inferno. Wow. Very yes. left field. Yes. Now, it's because that a lot of these people that are featured, I do know. I do know. I could give it to Macho Man, because he has been consistently brilliant in this. And I want to give it to him. I really, really do. But I'm going off people that have surprised me. Now, I've heard so much about Brian Pillman, but I've never really actually seen it in front of me before. Whereas with Disco Inferno, I've had this perceived notion about him that he is a piece of shit person and that he was this guy that never fucking drew a dime or never got over, he had a shitty gimmick or like that. But Disco Inferno has continuously made me laugh. He has been absolutely brilliant as a comedy character, which is the whole point of him. But Brian Pillman, he's, you know, seeing this, this guy actually flourish from this very nervous, you know, I, I, I won't say shy, but, you know, just this guy that didn't really know what really to do with 
you know, in in terms of being a promo guy. And he also had a lot going against him because he, he's had, I think it's uh, several throat surgeries. I'm not so sure if it was cancerous or not, but he's had several fro- uh, throat surgeries, which has left him with this very gruff voice. So he can't really get over as a baby face because of that, because no one's going to think that this guy is, like, you know, it just doesn't work. And he had a lot going against him for that. But, you know, in the ring, he is he's, he's a solid hand. He's very, very good. But he's blossomed into one of my favourite promo guys on the show. And for that, he has been my star of 1995. Coolio. Next up would be the match of the year. Match of the year, Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Benoit. Absolutely. Fucking Completely agree. Can't be anything else. Sorry, guys. There's (laughs) been some really good matches, but it can't be anything else. Yeah, and they've all involved like either Chris Benoit or Eddie Guerrero. Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that is the one. That is the one. Feud of the year. Feud of the year. See, that's really tough because there hasn't really been anything like major outside of the main event. And, hmm. you know, it's... I could say Eddie Guerrero versus Chris Benoit, but they haven't been featured enough on TV together. Barring, you know, the, the few matches that they had, there's not really been a fair story between them. Um, like I said, there's only been one, but there's really been two. Uh, you know, Rip Flair and Sting, but again, it's been quite low-key. I have to say, it, it's just by default at this point. Everything that's going on between Hogan, Luger, Sting and Savage, even for the two people that I do not like in that, in that, you know, that foursome, there's another word, uh, <laughs> you know, even though there's two people that I don't like in that, the story that they've told, and it's been going on for throughout, you know, the distrust of Lex Luger, Sting siding with Luger, but trying to remain friends with Savage and Hogan, Hogan dis- uh, questioning whose side is he on and all that, it is a very simple but very effective story. And it is a four-way feud on the face of it, even though we haven't seen them really feud so much. It is a feud. It's very brewing. So I have to give it to that because there's been nothing else of, you know, from that nature, really. You know, it's just like there's nothing else you can give it to. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's not much. I mean, the only thing that that really sticks out in my head is is the odd time when Owen Anderson slapped Brian Pillman. Yeah. And if we could if we could quantify that as a feud, um, and if it went on a little bit longer, even though it's obviously a respect thing, you know, you should respect your place in the horseman, blah blah blah. I would still put that if there was a bit more longevity to it, but there yeah. isn't, sadly. What would be the talker of the year? Talker of the year. So if you have a favourite promo or, or just whoever's been talking. Um, well, again, I could give it to Macho Man Randy Savage because he is just... He's always an air promo. Rick Fleur, uh, he's always an air promo. Arn Anderson, always an air promo. He's a double air promo. <laughs> um, but again, it has to be Brian Pillman because he just switched on overnight. He switched on overnight and every single week... If he gets on the mic, you just know, even if he just goes off on one and does random fucking impressions and all that, he's always entertaining. Uh, theme music of the year. Theme music of the year. Oh, Disco Inferno. <laughs> and I'm not even joking, I'm not even being ironic. I find myself singing Disco Inferno's theme in the shower a lot. 
it's just drilled into my head. I unironically love that theme. Good job you're not singing the Arn Anderson theme in, in the shower because you'd be knocking things over. Uh, I, I, I see, that's the thing. Arn Anderson's theme, I want to give it to, but that's just going to, it's not even going to be theme of the year. That's just going to be theme throughout WCW's timeline because we're going to hear more <laughs> of that. And I can't, and I know that we're going to hear more of that, but I don't know how long that Disco Inferno theme is going to stick around. I don't know if they're just going to give him a random new theme at any point. You know, and I'd I'd also heard Arn Anderson's theme before we started this podcast, and I always, you know, I liked it then, and I didn't realize how much I liked it until we started this podcast. Whereas Disco Inferno, again, with all the preconceived notions I had about the guy and the wrestler and the character, uh, that you know, not even knowing this theme, but that theme has been an absolute highlight, and uh, and I know a part of it is his antics on top of it, you know, but every time I hear that theme theme it just brings me joy because i know something's gonna happen i know something's gonna make me laugh <laughs> you know but it is it is unironically a good theme it, the lyrics are so bad he's so cocky he's so cool it's like you know it's it's on the levels of he does this he does that with the man called sting broadcaster of the year this can include all commentators and ring interviewers tony shivani gene Auckland, etc etc yeah well, again, I want to give it to Gene Auckland, but again, I know what he can do. I know what he's about. Mongo is the guy. He has been the. He, he is the guy because I've said it in this podcast, in this episode, even that I went in thinking Mongo's a piece of shit because I've heard some stories about him that you know that I'm not very fond of, and I know that his wrestling career wasn't anything special. I mean. Uh, as we talk, an account on Twitter has just come up uh, that he's dedicated to Mongo's wrestling career and the gifts us. It, it just showcases what a bad wrestler he is. Uh, we, me and you were talking about this earlier on today that uh, Conrad Thompson had uh, retweeted a gif from that account um, where Mongo picks up Sting in the corner and he doesn't have a fucking clue what to do with him. <laughs> You know, I, I watched that after you you texted me about it and I was just pissing myself laughing. It was so fucking funny. Uh, that account is just a gold mine. But again, yeah, preconceived notions aside, Mongo on the first episode, there were times where I found him frustrating, but he has continuously made me laugh throughout. There's always been some kind of funny line from him. And some some of these lines I can't really highlight as anything special because they're just being like very selfish, very selfish, just little snippets that, you know, just, it's because it's so uns- unsuspecting of him. It's still unsuspecting unsus- of him. But there are times in the show where you can't overlook something that he says. Like the highlight, a commentary highlight for me throughout all of this so far has been when Sabu was trying to put Alex Wright through a table and Mongo just comes out and says, he's going to turn him into a buffet. It's just a good line (laughs) because the imagery is so ridiculous. It it has to be Mongo because he has surprised me and he's made me take these opinions of him and shove them down my throat. He has been continuously brilliant. And unrelated to the Nitrogen podcast, that is at That's Our Mongo. If you like the gifts that keep giving. That's the one. The gifts that keep giving. Nice one. Yeah. (laughs) Got to start wrapping this up now. We've got the tag team of the year. 
Um, it has to be American males. Yeah. For the exact same reason. Yep. Because preconceived notions aside, tag teams haven't really been featured all that much. So I could have said Hall and Heat and no one would argue. But American males, you know, you see their individuals, individual performances and you are solid wrestlers. And I also, again, I had this, you know, perception of Buff Bagwell, you know, as a performer because of what I've seen. He hasn't been great later on in his career. But during this, he has been very surprising when he's been given a chance He's shown that he has the ability, and I don't know what happens with him later on in his career. I know he has a very nasty injury, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Does he? Does he break his neck or something like that, or break his spine? I think he. I think he broke his neck in like ninety nine, maybe two thousand, yeah. something like that. And obviously, I've seen him after that, so I can understand him actually toning down his performance after that. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, he he he's shown that he has ability. Scotty Riggs, I knew nothing about. And as I said earlier on in this episode, untapped potential. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it has to be them. Yeah. And it almost seems by default, but it has to be the American Mills. That would have been mine as well. American Mills! <laughs> American Mills! That thing's that would have been what That would have been the third best theme of the year, would it? Yeah, because it, it's so cheesy, but so... It, it, it's... You know, you can't really expect much more from WCW nineteen ninety five. Not really, but at least they got their own theme instead of some stock TNT flipping. Well, it wouldn't have even been an MP three in nineteen ninety five, would it? Just going back to Buff Bagwell there as well. He, he ruptured both of his calves at one point. Oh, geez. yeah. So he's not he's not exactly had the best run of luck, but it is good to see that he's apparently doing all right again after a, a video surfaced from Cameo that seemed a little bit. I wouldn't say disheartening. It was worrying to me simply because it's the kind of guy that I've, I've watched as I was growing up and you never want to see somebody in such a state that, you know, you never know if they're going to be around much longer. Uh, it looks like he's come out the other side and everything was blown out of proportion a little bit, but it was a little bit of a touchy time um, when that cameo came out, so I'm glad he's doing better. Yeah. Finally, just to wrap this up now, we've got the ultimate, the ultimate wrestler of the year for WCW 1995 oh wrestler of the year Eddie Guerrero mm-hmm. so going by in-ring ability Eddie Guerrero um, you know you could say Savage because Savage is consistently great Sting is consistently great and Sting has surprised me because I hadn't really seen Surfer Sting as you call him uh, before so I could have easily given it to him but Eddie Guerrero and it's because Eddie Guerrero has been featured almost every single week and he has really really surprised me i mean before we even started this podcast uh mark had actually said to me that you'll be surprised with eddie guerrero because he isn't the guy that you see in wwe later on in wwe he puts on more mass and he tones down his abilities and god damn it mark you were so right (laughs) He, he fucking surprised me with his athletic ability he is so fucking good. I mean, we'll talk about that that um, arm drag move that he did um, mm. earlier on, where it looked like he was doing a frog splash, but just rolled through. Like, you know, fr- from the face of it, that should have been a fuck-up. That looked like a fuck-up, but when you actually see it in the replay, it's not a fuck-up. It, 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 it was fully intentional. And when you actually see that, and you see it slow down, oh my God, what a move. What a mm. move. Just... Unique to his own, and you know, yeah, he's just absolutely brilliant. 
There's not, I can't rave about him enough. It says a lot that Alex Wright has not got an accolade from me. <laughs> but again, he hasn't been featured enough. Eddie Guerrero featured almost every single week. Consistently brilliant. Rest yep. of the year, no doubt. Yeah, he makes a wrist lock look superb, Eddie Guerrero. Yes. And we're lucky enough to, to say that we can you know enjoy another three as we were saying about Dimalenko earlier, we've got another three years of, of, of glorious matches upcoming. The cruiserweight division's just going to get bigger, badder, stronger and better. And, you know, it's going to be an exciting time just to see Eddie Guerrero just going all the way through this. I couldn't agree more. It would have been my rest of the year as well. It's a shame, like you said, that Alex Wright doesn't get as much Nitro time as he looked like he might have done. But um, whilst he might have been relegated, if you like, to Saturday night, at least Eddie Guerrero is continuously being pushed on you know the the flagship program as as yeah the face of WCW essentially yeah they know they've got something with him but I don't think Alex Wright will be crying too much because I believe in 1995 he did re- he did win the Pro Wrestling Illustrated uh, Rookie of the Year award. See if if you had a Rookie of the Year award, you know if you actually thought about this beforehand, I would have been able to give Alex Wright an accolade. See, guys, it's all Mark's fault. All Mark's okay, fault. Okay, then. Well, rookie, rookie of the Year award from the Nitrogen podcast, it goes to Alex Wright. There you go. He got the award. Uh, Disclaimer, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it is Alex Wright. <laughs> I'll give you a fiver if you can guess who came second in the Rookie of the Year award in 1995. Oh, that's interesting. Rookie of the Year in 1995. Um, and I can't give you too much time because you'll Google it. Fucking, no, my phone's on my bed. I'm not even looking at it. Um, Jesus Christ. Hugh Morris. Wrong. No. Craig um, Pittman. Craig Pittman? Yeah. No. <laughs> no way. Are you seriously? Why? Why? <laughs> Why? And oh, I, I, I just, I had to get that little tidbit of information in there because, I mean, it's just a little bit like, what? What the fuck? No one remembers the silver medal winners. No, they don't. And I don't think he won anything else after that, to be perfectly honest. No, no championships? I don't know. Let's find out. 1996 is coming up on a future episode of the Nitrogen podcast just in a couple of weeks. Wow, we're rounding up 1995 here. We've done our awards. I, I don't know what else we can do but say goodbye to the people at home. Happy New Year. <laughs> As always, it's been great doing this uh, for you guys that are listening out there. And as I said, we're going to be going straight into 1996 in just a couple of weeks' time. So you can get in touch with us on the usual social media channels. You can at us on Twitter. You can go on to Reddit and you can go on to Instagram. At NitrogenCast is where you'll find us there. You can always give us a like on Facebook. We're always available on your favourite podcast networks, such as Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher. Uh, and loads and loads of other ones as well of course the feedback is much appreciated on all the social media networks we'd love to have a chat with you just come in, say hi, shoot the shit and tell us who'd win your 1995 awards of the year if it came to WCW yeah